Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snumian. We are joined today by a very special guest. She's a writer and the host of With Friends Like These and Space the Nation, and she's also a fellow member of the Losers Club, Anna Marie Cox. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled to have an opportunity to talk about this movie. I could talk about it like forever and have, full disclosure, <laughs> talked about it for two hours already a couple months ago on the other podcast, but that's how much. Oh. I love <laughs> It's a good one. Yeah. And so this is a comfort horror episode and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. And we are watching a classic today. So Anna, what movie are we talking about? We're talking about Alien, um, which is one of those movies that I think everyone thinks that they know. It's like so ingrained into popular culture. Like I was thinking about when I first saw it and I couldn't actually remember because it just feels like it's always been a part of culture and I've always known something about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say that I think it became sort of part of my comfort horror weirdly during my first marriage. Like, yeah. And I don't know exactly how or why that happened, except that Hmm. it just became something that, I mean, maybe it's because I felt really claustrophobic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But we had the DVD and it just was something I could put on like on a Sunday afternoon and kind of have playing in the background. Mm-hmm. I think in more recent history, it's become a movie that I feel strongly about, like is a cinemaphile, you know, mm-hmm. like I think mm-hmm. it is actually a perfect movie in many right. ways. And I don't mean that it's perfect. Like it's, it is one of the best movies ever, although it could be, but like every <laughs> frame in it means something. It, it, there's mm-hmm. no piece of dialogue, no no bit of sound, no bit of screen that is wasted. And that's one of the reasons I think mm-hmm. it really does bear not just like on in the background reviewing, but intentional reviewing. There's there's just mm-hmm. so much to see in it. There, Yeah, I totally agree. And As I'm looking I. forward to really diving into it or floating out into it. Maybe, <laughs> if, if that works. Getting sucked out um, into the airlock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of Alien. Um, but, but before we do that, let's give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Alien. Oh, and I even wrote Aliens in this in my notes. In I was like, I was about to delete the S. I'm like, I mean, <laughs> honestly, if you're listening to the show and haven't seen Alien, Pause oh God, this. Stop now. Yeah, just pause. Yeah. Right? Go watch, Go watch the watch. damn movie. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You might and, think you've here, seen it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might. Yes. But really, it was have, just space balls that you've seen. <laughs> yeah. It was just the clip on a VH1 countdown of the most shocking horror moments. <laughs> Which I love that countdown. Yes. So, but anyways, here's your spoiler warning if you have not seen this movie. And in space, 
no one can hear you spoil. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where the cackle came from. (laughs) But I love it. (laughs) I'm going to start integrating cackling more into my lifestyle. (laughs) You just moved. So that'll be a good way to get to know your neighbors. It's just start Exactly. (laughs) I'm a cackle. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I'm now done. that it's started, I can't. All the stop. neighborhood okay. kids will make dares to like. You have to go to the Nosferatu place and then steal something. You need yeah. and then Old steal Lady something. Adam's house. Yes. <laughs> They'll dare you to steal objects. We'll just start leaving like Blair Witch stuff out. Huh. Yeah. All right. Stick Sorry. bundles. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> we open on the Nostromo, a spaceship where seven crew members sleep in egg-like pods in their tidy whiteies. They awaken from stasis. Captain Dallas, a.k.a. Tom Skerritt at his handsomest. Kane, the British one. Ripley herself. (laughs) Lambert, the other woman. Ash of the One Ring. And two engineers, Parker and Brett. We learn they're less a Star Trek kind of crew and more a... Hold on, I gotta do... Nine to five, what a way to make a living kind of crew. I'm sorry, that was my terrible dolly. That was great. I loved it. I'm sorry, I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth. Um, They are (laughs) employees of a corporation. Also, they talk to the ship's computer and call it mother, which never stops sounding weird. (laughs) They realize they were woken up early because of a distress call out there in the middle of nowhere space. And per company policy, they have to investigate it. Yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Okay. <sighs> After a rocky landing that damages the ship, Dallas, Kane, and Lambert alight on the planet's surface to investigate. They find a crashed ship, and as Jen, not I, wrote into the synopsis, they climb into its butthole. It looks like a butthole. It does look like a butthole. It was really late when I wrote the rough draft. I know, and I because I, I saw your rough draft, and I was like, I'm leaving that line in. That's staying in. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Speaking of which, there they find a giant alien skeleton sitting in a chair, and everything looks like it was designed by some kind of kinky little German weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Ominous. Very ominous. Kane descends into a pit with a bunch of eggs, because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? He sees something that might be life inside one of the eggs. It opens its top like an ooey-gooey flower, and something bursts out and attaches itself to Kane's faceplate. Cut to, oh shit, the crew wants back on the Nostromo. Dallas is holding an unconscious cane and demands Ripley open the hatch to let them inside. Ripley points out a little something that uh, we like to call quarantine procedure (laughs) and says the line that for me, it's different now. If we break quarantine, we all die. Mm-hmm. Ripley standing up to dumb orders from her superiors since 1979. Hashtag girl boss. Hashtag I'm still with her. <laughs> this is Ripley. Okay. Oh, Ripley. Without fanfare, Ash lets them in anyway. What the fuck, Ash? They examine Kane and find something yucky and prehistoric looking hugging his face. It's what you might call a face hugger. Kane is paralyzed and apparently comatose, but the creature seems to be keeping him alive. Their attempt to excise the face hugger does not go well. Its gooey blood is corrosive, and as it splashes onto the floor, they scramble to make sure it doesn't eat straight through the ship. Ripley and Ash have a pretty civil conversation about how she outranks him, and he ignored her orders. Later, the face hugger has disappeared from hugging Kane's face, but they don't exactly know where it went, 
until it falls down Ripley and scares the shit out of the audience. It's dead and gross, and Ash wants to study it. Ripley and Dallas have a super hot hallway conversation about Ash. <laughs> Turns out he was a last-minute replacement on the crew, and Ripley doesn't trust him. Tragically, they do not make out in this scene. Now, Kane is awake and seems just fine. They all sit down to have a celebratory meal. Yay! But it turns out Kane's not quite at 100%. During the meal, he starts convulsing and a tiny little alien creature bursts out of his chest. Let's call it a uh, chest burster. <laughs> Kane dies because, well, obviously, and the alien scatters off somewhere, spurring on a search. This is also where the movie gets very wet. I just wanted to point mm-hmm. that out. It's a very ah. wet movie. It is, yeah. It rains <laughs> a lot in spaceships. It's like, why is it so wet? <laughs> it's moist. <laughs> it's for atmosphere. Yeah, it's like things in the 70s. I have a whole sidebar about 70s genre films that are wet, but okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Armed with nets and flamethrowers, the crew disperses to search for the alien. Brett finds the crew cat Jonesy and follows him into the room of chains and water, a room essential to the operation of all spaceships. We're <laughs> finding the alien's shed skin, Almost like it's rapidly growing, he gets got by said alien, who is indeed much bigger now. Jonesy looks on from the shadows, R.I.P. H.D.S. My favorite, Harry Dean Stan. I love him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Dallas is looking for the creature in the vents. The plan is to go through each air vent, sealing them off until they corner it and suck it out into space. Ash and Mother have no comment. As anyone who has seen any genre film or television show can tell you, Dallas gets ambushed by the alien in the vents and killed. R.I.P. Hot Captain. (sighs) (sighs) Ripley (laughs) just a sigh. Ripley talks to Mother and learns some interesting information about the ship. Turns out Ash is on the side of evil, a.k.a. the horrible corporation they work for, and his secret mission on the ship is to capture the life form and bring it back to Earth. He attacks Ripley by trying to shove a magazine in her mouth... WTF. I, I just, it's so aggressive. I hate things that go for the mouth. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's just... Can, uh, I, can I jump into yeah, please. It's a porn magazine? Oh, oh that's yeah. right. Oh, you're right. Oh, I like that mm. symbolism. Sorry, I got way too... <laughs> that was <laughs> that was shrill and probably peaked on the mic levels. I apologize. <laughs> Defending Ripley, Parker hits Ash with a bat. A phallic symbol. Sorry. Okay. He... Yeah. Pre- <laughs> A lot, of go- a lot of that going on here. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of which, he freaks out and spews milk everywhere. Work <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> for it also could. Yep. <laughs> that would be a lot of it, though. That would be a <laughs> insane amount. It's of life. It. It's life force shit. Like, let's just say it's life force. Stuff. Yes, yes. It's yeah. some kind of life force related goo. When a second hit, take that as you will. (laughs) (laughs) Just (sighs) isolate that sound sample. Okay. (laughs) When a second hit knocks his head off, we learn that he's actually an android. His milk-covered head... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. His milk-covered head gives them some depressing information. You can't kill the alien. It's a perfect machine. He also gives a standard college kid who likes Nietzsche's spiel about it being unhindered by morality, blah, 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 whatever. Cut the power. <laughs> Time to self-destruct this ship and escape in shuttles, as it sounds like that's the only way to destroy this horrifying alien creature. Lambert and Parker go to do some space things while Ripley goes to look for Jonesy, winning over the hearts of every cat lover in the audience. <laughs> the alien kills Lambert and Parker while Ripley hears the whole thing, unable to help. 
The ship is going to explode in 10 minutes with the option to override in five. Ripley books it through the corridors with her badass flamethrower in tow. She gets to the escape pod with one minute left before the ship self-destructs. She and Jonesy make it. The Nostromo is destroyed, and woman and cat are safe to live another day. Ripley gets comfy in her undies, ready to settle into a stasis pod. But not so fast that alien she just destroyed the entire spaceship for is actually on board with her. Fuck! She sneaks into a spacesuit and straps herself in, then uses the airlock to suck the alien into the void of space. After a struggle, she harpoons it away. Ripley is finally free. She gives her final report and settles in for a long, well-earned space nap with Jonesy, <laughs> my favorite animal in, in genre films. Okay. That's that's the alien. That's the synopsis. I'm done talking. That's it. Yeah. I whenever like I'm done writing the drafts, I always want to just shout the name of the movie at the end alien! for some reason. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really calling to me. It needs like a one, button, yeah. and usually it's just me going, oh, <laughs> <laughs> or me going, alien. <laughs> so now let's do a feelings check, and this is when we share our first experience with Alien and how we feel when we watch it. And Anna, I know you started talking a little bit about this earlier, but um, and you said you don't remember the first time you watched this movie, right? No, I, I probably saw it as a kid, actually. Um, my mom was big into horror, actually. And she probably, she has kind of the same, same hairstyle as Ripley. Nice. Hmm. And actually the same, she was a tall, thin lady. Um, hmm. And I imagine she identified with Ripley a little bit. And also I was a Mad Magazine reader as a kid. And Mad Magazine did a big, it is one of the parodies they did. And I kind of think that maybe I, like that's actually my first memory of Alien, like long before I saw hmm. it was the Mad Magazine parody, which, you know, kind of is hmm. one of those things that made me kind of, unclear about when I saw it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and as far as like feelings check about it, you know, I was I just, you know, scribbled some notes about what, you know, I think why it is comfort for me. And, and there's, a, there's kind of a lot. I think one of the first things I fell in love with was Jonesy. Like I've always been like an animal person. And um, now I've come to recognize that saving the cat is its own trope. Right. Mm -hmm. But that was the first time I ever saw it. And then I think like the comfort parts of it are both how it's uncomfortable and comfortable in a way. Like it is, it is a movie that has, a, it's a lot about control and claustrophobia, but it's also about agency. And I think that kind of, you know, emanates from it uh, in a way. And then there's sort of like the aesthetic ways that, that it's comfort. It is beautiful. It's, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's a gorgeous movie. And I'm not one for gore, which makes I'm a kind of an odd duck horror fan in that way. But oh, same. The the I wouldn't even say what's in this movie is gore exactly. Like it's really beautiful stuff. Like I mean, H. R. Geiger, like the weird the kinky, kinky German, German weirdo. Guy. <laughs> I had to make fun of him a little bit, but I love yeah. I love him. Like, <laughs> he made this incredibly upsetting stuff really aesthetically appealing. You know, mm -hmm. it's discomforting, but not gross. Yes. And I think it's also one of those movies that the plot is such that like you can either tune in or tune out, you know, mm -hmm. like it's kind of like you can have it on in the background and not miss anything, but also it does bear rewatching. And then I think <laughs> I've come to appreciate the anti-capitalist um, pro-labor 
aspect of it. And in in that way, I think, you know, the movie is ultimately empowering on like several levels. Mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> it's the feel-good horror movie of the century. It really is. <laughs> it's like the people's the people's sci-fi horror movie. <laughs> it is. And and it is, I mean, there's some problems with it as there is like everything in terms of how it represents gender. But I think for the most part, it's hard not to feel identification with Ripley. And there isn't really romance in it. I mean, like you can joke about the Dallas vibe, but Mm -hmm. like, I think I like as someone who watched it to feel agency in romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the lack of like any kind of sexy time in it. Yeah. And also I appreciate that that scene that's so infamous about about um, Ripley stripping down to her underwear. She's not sexy in that scene. Mm-hmm. Like you can parody it as sexy, but she has a super athletic body, you know, mm-hmm. with like no hips. And she, I mean, I kind of wish in some level, I wish she did look more like a lady, but, <laughs> but she's not sexy. She's just like getting into her spacesuit, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And I, th- I liked that. Is this the kind of thing that I am checking in about? <laughs> Oh no! This yeah, is yeah, great. and we'll probably dig more. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and we'll probably dig more into that. Yeah, I think ultimately it's it's like I said. Ultimately, it's it's weirdly empowering, mm-hmm. and that's why it's that's why it's kind of soothing. Yeah, totally. Mike, what about you? So it's funny, Anna. You had said like it's one of those movies that people think they know. So I think that's really true. I think like this movie has been so ubiquitous in pop culture for so many years. And the Xenomorph in particular has been just all-encompassing monster that they keep going back to. Um, I know for me, like, I don't remember the first time I saw Alien, yet it's probably one of my three or four favorite movies of all time. And the argument can be made, it's like the greatest horror movie of all time. Like, you can definitely put it in that category. But I was thinking back after you said that, I'm like, how would I have first known this movie? And it definitely would have been Spaceballs, for one, like the Xenomorph and like a top hat and cane. <laughs> thinking, I think, I forget what it was singing. I think it was like, hello, my Grammy. Hello, my baby. It was yes. doing that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think most people think of James Cameron's Aliens from 1986, especially mm-hmm. when they think of Ripley and they think of like the female yep. superhero. I much prefer this Ripley. Um, Mm -hmm. Like the very smart, measured, smarter than everyone else in the room and determined to do what's right, even if it has like a cost to it overall. And then I'm thinking like the Dark Horse comics and video games, all of those things kind of informed Alien before I think I even saw Alien. And I'm one of those weirdos who like, as soon as I'm done watching Alien, I want to throw on Prometheus, which I think is the second Mm -hmm. best film in the series, I actually have Aliens ranked fourth behind Fincher's cut of Alien 3 or the producer's cut of Alien 3. Uh, I'm not a big Aliens person, even though it's a masterpiece. Over the past few years, I just find myself like returning to this movie over and over again because it's informed so much of other things I love. And there's a quote from the writer Dan O'Bannon in the documentary uh, Memory, The Origins of Alien, where he says, I didn't steal from anyone. I stole from everyone. So all of Dan O'Bannon's loves basically come up on up to the screen in Alien. Like you can see it in his writing, whether it's the old EC comics, the 
very weird science fiction from like the 1950s and 1960s. His love for H.R. Lovecraft and and cosmic horror. Um, And then also his appreciation for H.R. Giger and what he had seen him begin to create on Jodorowsky's Dune. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those things are so apparent on an alien um, that just makes for this wonderful movie. And, I'm sure we'll get into it when we talk about the movie in more depth. But what I keep returning to when I watch this movie is it's much less about the xenomorph as perfect as a monster that is, but just the whole world that Ridley Scott is able to build on the screen. And this is actually the second comfort horror movie we've done in a row where it explores the dangers of exploration and how like staying moving outside of your lane is what's going to kill you, you know, between (laughs) this and Blair Witch Project. But you understand like as a kid that like spent so much time in the woods and running through the neighborhood, like you can see why they wanted to, as soon as they stumble upon this space anus that they just basically want to explore it and go into it. And they're like, we know this is really dangerous, but we keep wanting to press forward because my God, when are we going to ever find or discover anything like this ever again? And one quick note before we move on, like the thing with the space jockey, which Mm -hmm. is a brief moment in the film that they don't return to in 2012. And it's this giant visual of the, you just, that one image sets the stakes for what they are going to get involved in. Mm-hmm. without over explaining it without even returning to it or mentioning it. and fox wanted to cut that they were like look we don't need this in our movie um it doesn't enhance the plot in any way it doesn't move things forward and ridley scott who that really young director at the time he absolutely insisted like no this is going to stay in the movie and at one point, like Geiger, Giger had been fired from the film. And when Scott came on board, he insisted Giger get rehired back on because he knew he was the only person capable of creating the kind of images that Scott had in his head for this movie. But basically, he says this mo- this image has to stay in the movie because it's going to set up the stakes for what this crew is in for. And it's one of the most revered images in science fiction horror and one of the most discussed until you get to the you know long-awaited prequel sequel in in 2012 which i know people are mixed on i personally love that movie i just wish that charlie's theron knew how to run sideways that's pretty much my only <laughs> critique so like a gallop you know or like a shuffle you know of sideways running yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why this is such a rich text is that the backstory to it is as almost as interesting as the movie mm-hmm. itself. Oh, like yeah. the Dan O'Bannon, like, oh. what an amazing character who yes. wound up not making a whole lot of other stuff, right? He has his hands in like a lot of different things as a writer. Yeah. Like this is buried. his vision. This is like the yeah. thing that his vision was. Yeah. And and I was also gonna say, like, I'm not a huge fan of like 70s auteur movie mm-hmm. culture, but this mm-hmm. like is an argument for it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the way that the studio gave Ridley Scott such age, I mean, again, it's a movie about agency. Like they mm-hmm. just let him kind of run. 
you know, and this is an example of, of decadence working in someone's favor, yeah. but only because yes. he's such a restrained movie maker. Yeah. I am a fan of like 70s auteur theory just because of the films you got out of that decade. I think it's one of the greatest decades. It's just one of the richest periods in American cinema overall. And I think there's a reason we keep returning to it. I prefer that over the movie franchises by committee where there's like no one singular vision that is like steering the ship. And then you have like, basically what you have now are like color form movies. Well, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you mm-hmm. got some of cinema, arguably cinema's best films out of it, but it's also like you, you got some of the most abusive assholes who treated their, their cast and crew like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's and, a very like, male centered yeah, it's it's it is. Usually, yeah. It didn't yeah. leave a lot of breathing room for other points of view, you know, and, and so I think it's like obviously the pendulum swings hard in one direction or the other. So you have the 70s and then you have the like, you know, studio dictated franchises and stuff. So it's like maybe we should come to somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle where we allow yeah. Yeah. diverse viewpoints to have a say in the room, but we don't. Um, you know, we don't just give in to like right. algorithms and commercial demands, you know, I don't know. And also just like everything just looked better in the 70s because of the cameras and the film stock they were using. I mean, <laughs> like, abusive, mm. abusive culture and film sets didn't go away just because studios oh, no. had more of a, a say in it. Like if we could take the best things from that, if we can get the things that get us Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, like as far as I know, like no one's ever gone on record and said like Martin Scorsese is an a, a, abusive Filmmaker, this is, maybe this own? is a whole different podcast. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could yeah, really I just say like all those auteurs are pretty much men, and they mm-hmm. they made movies like the movies you just mentioned, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, classics. They are super masculine and like super male gaze centered, and what happens to women in those movies is not great. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that there is it's it's just a cutting. I mean, I I just want to put forward again, like this movie is a really interesting product of that culture. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. It's, because it's rare. It it's wouldn't have rare. gotten made except for Ridley Scott being a man, being a very strong voice, like having all this privilege. But the way he made the movie is incredibly restrained mm-hmm. and has such interesting stuff to say about gender. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. That it winds up being like I said. I think it's this is like a right up there with raging you know in terms of like art and and what it has to say about us you know i agree and i think dan o'bannon's writing has a lot to do with that and i'm i'm I'm, i have his book on screenwriting that i've never actually read but he wrote some of my favorite two of my other favorite genre films which are the return of the living dead and total recall and I, i don't really know if i see like a strong theme there in terms of thoughts about gender and stuff, but I just find him an interesting character. And I find, I find the writing in this unusually, I mean, it, it feels organic in the way a lot of those seventies film or, you know, utter films feel where you get that kind of like natural dialogue and stuff, but set in this genre kind of environment. And I think it's just such a really interesting conversation or such a really interesting um, juxtaposition is what I'm going for. And I, I don't know, I'm just fascinated by it. So I, I, should, should I do my feelings trick? Yeah, just go for it. Okay. <laughs> All right, sorry. Yeah. Digression. <laughs> oh, but no, an no, important okay. digression. No, no, I think it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. And I, I could honestly mm. talk about that forever. So uh, like everyone else, and so for now, uh, you all understand how I feel during every single episode where you can't remember the first time you saw a movie. <laughs> 
Welcome, my friends. Uh, this is yeah. a running theme for me. So I also can't remember the first time I saw it. I'm almost positive. I mean, I, I can say with some confidence that I saw Aliens a bazillion times before I ever saw Alien because it was always on TV. I, I feel like as a way I saw a lot of... Um, genre films when I was younger was were the ones that were just playing late at night on WGN or whatever other channel my dad left playing because it was like after a Cubs game. And I definitely saw aliens, plural, multiple, multiple times and didn't really have a strong sense of the backstory or and and I sort of vaguely remember knowing that Alien existed, but I'm I completely agree. It's one of those movies that's so ubiquitous that you don't really realize you haven't seen it. And I also know it was on a lot mm -hmm. of those, you know, I saw that clip of the chest burster thing a bazillion times, probably before I ever actually saw the movie. I And I honestly don't remember when I first sat down and watched it, but I'm willing to bet it was sometime in the early 2000s when I was going through my getting into horror obsessive sort of going through lists of movies phase. And I completely agree with everything both of you said. I think it really is just from a filmmaking perspective, almost a perfect movie. Uh, I think it's it's gorgeous. The the soundscapes, um, the aesthetic that H.R. Geiger brought to the table and that Ridley Scott and his sort of poetic framing that makes people either really small in a scene or really huge in a small space. They're either really small in a huge space or really huge in a small space seems to be, I don't know. It, it really is evocative. And um, I just think it's beautiful. And I think, and I I watched it, a handful of months ago, I, I, I want to say it was actually more like six or seven months ago because I watched it as part of a film series that me and my friends were doing in the pandemic where we would watch movies together over Discord and then talk about it, um, because, you know, while we were all separated. And a lot of the people in that group are not horror or genre, big genre fans, you know. So um, it was interesting watching it with a bunch of people who hadn't seen it before and then hearing them talk about it and their reactions to it. And everybody fucking loved it. Even like one or two people who are just like, don't really like horror movies and don't really like getting scared. They were like, that movie was badass. Like they just, they felt it more like an action film with horror elements. And like, it really is. It's like, it's so entertaining beyond everything else. It just, the pacing is perfect. The length is perfect. It just, it is an exciting movie to watch. You get so on board with Ripley, the Jonesy element, Yes, it is a trope, but God damn it, it works. It makes you so on her mm -hmm. side. Everything about it is just pitch perfect. And it has this sort of political labor rights thing. And, and watching it in the middle of the pandemic, when she said the quarantine line, we were all like, oh, fuck, listen to Ripley. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it just it's it has aged so well. Yes, there are things that we can pick apart and examine in terms of gender. But like you said, Anna, like that is just gender and our dialogue around gender has just never been any good and we are just now really starting to like unpack and talk about a lot of it and i think this movie did something really really po for the most part really positive in an era when those kind of conversations just weren't happening and fucking sigourney weaver rules everybody in this movie rules the whole cast is so good like it's just so fucking good like i could just like i want to scream i definitely think it's the my favorite of the franchise i don't have a lot of like strong feelings about the later films in the franchise people seem to be either like love it or hate it kind of when it's stuff when it comes to the the later installments and i don't know i really just love alien and aliens and i have enjoyed the other films in the franchise i don't i just don't have a lot of strong feelings about it beyond aliens and so that's that's just my pov but i fucking love this movie i think it's great it fucking rules hell yeah <laughs> 
I have a, a pretty complicated relationship with this movie, and I I don't remember the first time I watched it, but it was pretty recently. It was probably like within the last 10 years. Because I remember the first time I became aware of it was when probably Spaceballs, but like I remember watching Bravo's 101 Scariest Movie Moments, which I love, love, love. But so I had seen this the chestburster scene before I really even understood what the movie was, you know? And I was listening to... Um, Oh, you're wrong about episode. Thanks again, Laura. <laughs> where they were talking about the Godfather, and they were talking what about what an amazing um, podcast. I'm so yes, jealous. Yeah, we're also stands of it now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, they were talking about like there should be a a word for a movie where you understand the significance of the movie before you see the movie. Like I knew all the tropes, and I knew what the movie was kind of doing, or I knew the outline of the movie before I'd seen it, and. So I just didn't watch it for a long time. I also, I have the really kind of complicated relationship with sci-fi too. Whereas like, if I can find an in, I love it. But it's really hard for me to find that in sometimes. Like I love Terminator 2. I always say it's a perfect movie. I love Sunshine. I love Event Horizon. Like once I figure out the sci-fi movie, I usually really, really enjoy it, but it's really hard for me to find that in sometimes. And this one took me a really long time to find an in on. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, I also, I just, aliens have never been something that's really scared me. So when I was growing up and I was looking at this compared to all of the other movie titles, it's just not one that I was drawn to. This is a really dumb thing. But I also, like I've said, I don't like gore, but I really, really, really don't like spit and slobber. So when I saw the alien like dripping spit, I was like, ooh, like it was off-putting <laughs> to me. So I just, like in clips and stuff. So I just avoided this one for a long time. And then I watched it um, probably for a podcast or so, I, I don't remember when I watched it. Watched it for the first time, but I watched it and I was like, okay, um, I like this. I see what it's doing. I agree with you. I think it is practically a perfect movie. I think every scene, I think it really knows what it's doing, you know, but I think a lot of what it's doing, I find I have in the past found very uncomfortable, you know, like it's the movie itself doesn't make me uncomfortable, but what it reveals about mm. me and about society, I feel like really makes me really uncomfortable. In the same way Misery did for a long time, like there's there's a lot to say about, like we've said, agency and like power dynamic. And I feel like this movie reveals a lot of my like ingrained understanding of what a power dynamic should be. So a lot of times when that is flipped in a movie, it it makes me really uncomfortable. Sometimes I love it and I dive in and sometimes I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to sit with this for a little bit. And this is one it's, I've just had to sit with it for a long time. And every time I watch it, I love it more. And I see something new that I can kind of connect with and dig in. And I've said like, I love the movies with a lot that I can sink my teeth into, but sometimes sinking my teeth into those things scares me a little bit. And this is one that those things sink in and you know and I've taken a lot of shit for maybe not loving this movie and so there's a little bit of that that trigger that is connected to that too so so those are all of my feelings but I also I I like I do really love Ripley like she's really grown on me a lot I think I was conflating um aliens Ripley with just her the, my understanding of her as a character and I think the first alien I saw was alien 4 which I don't really remember much about that. But I think, like, I watch this one now and I think there's a lot to say about Ripley's character. But, and most of it I really love, which, I mean, we'll probably talk about. So anyways, that's my long and rambling. Like, this movie, I really react to this movie a lot. And I don't always understand what those reactions mean. So, hmm. yeah. So, yeah, those are my feelings. And that's <laughs> why we do the feelings check-in. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to kind of get that out of like, I, I don't, I don't know this movie, this movie challenges me, which I love, but sometimes being challenged is uncomfortable. So, so let's dig in and maybe we can start with talking about Ripley because I know that she is a feminist icon in a lot of ways. She is somebody that I kind of have I, I I have grown to really love her in a lot of ways. I think the thing, one of the things that I heard before I had even seen the movie was that she was written as a man mm-hmm. and they just swapped the, um, and they just cast a woman. And while I think, like I've kind of talked, I don't know, I've been talking for a long time. So if anybody else wants to take the floor <laughs> on Ripley. <laughs> My understanding, it. like O'Bannon didn't write anyone as a man or a woman. He just wrote roles. He it was just basically his intention was to make them gender neutral and then let them cast however they want to cast at that point, whether that's a hundred percent successful or not. Because I think you see with like the character of Lambert in particular, like she's given, I would say like a lot of like traditionally feminine feminine characteristics in horror movies. I don't know if that's one hundred percent accurate, but my understanding is like he was going for gender neutral and then allowing for them to let the chips fall as they might when they're, when it's cast. And I, that intrigues me. I mean, that's something I like in not in any way to compare myself to people like Dan O'Banner, someone who writes shitty little short films Mm -hmm. and stuff. I, I like to write characters that are kind of neutral and then allow the casting to fill in some of the holes. And I mean, really the only time I got to do that was with my short film, um, short leash and the actress brought so much of herself to that role that I was really glad that she was, it was kind of a blank slate. And I just really liked that experience. So I do think that's really interesting. I would like to learn more, more about their thinking for that. But, um, I, I just, I think yeah. that's a really, I, I think that that there's some, something magical that happens when you let the actor bring some of themselves to the role, but I don't know if that's exactly what happened here. <laughs> I tend to agree with like, yes, actors should bring, you know, something to the role, but I just going to voice some skepticism, some skepticism that you can write truly gender neutral characters. Sure. We all have social constructs in our head that are going to be, that are going to come out on paper no matter what, but. And if if someone, especially that time period could be just not thinking at all. Mm -hmm. Oh no, this could be anyone. This really could be any gender. I mean, yes, like you can cast in a gender neutral way. But it makes so much more sense to me that this was written as a man. Mm-hmm. Like, because I think that that at the time period, I think, and I mean, again, I, I'm not saying anything about the intention of the screenwriter, Dan O'Bannon, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because that, that, I don't really know much about that. But I think a lot of times when we think about neutral, the default is male. You know, like if mm-hmm. you, I, I come back to like the Bic Pen thing on Amazon, which you, if you haven't ever read the review of Bic Pens for ladies, just <laughs> take some time and, and indulge yourself because it's amazing. But it's like this understanding that neutral is male and everything else is other, you know, which I think is what hits me when I hear that Ripley was written as gender neutral or gender male, because this was written, I, I imagine, in the 70s, which would have been a time where women weren't really seen as neutral. You know, they were seen as female, which is, I think, where you have the character of Lambert. And I think, like, 
this was an evolution of a female character. And I think it's an important step down the road. And I wrote a thing about um, female action heroes. Like if I look at Linda Hamilton, a lot of what she is doing is mimicking the characteristics of a male action hero. And I feel like there's there's some of that with Ripley here. And it's just a step along the road. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Ripley. I think this is where when I start to dig into it, I start to feel just like it's just complicated you know i don't know i i see a lot of that like i think james cameron's portrayal of ripley is very much like he has a very specific feminine hero in mind and you see that with uh sarah connor in Mm -hmm. terminator and especially in terminator 2 i think you see that in aliens i think he has a very specific like archetype in mind i don't really see ripley as a action hero in this movie like she, no, I don't think she is in this one. And I don't think that was the intent to create a sort of action hero. And this is only a year removed from John Carpenter's Halloween. And I think that that, so it's probably being filmed as that movie is kind of making its way through the circuit. So you're not going to, you're not really reacting so much to Carpenter's movie because you're probably in post-production by the time that thing really kind of hits the zeitgeist. But it's a period where, early Laurie Strode and early Ripley are a very different kind of character than you would typically see in horror. They're not quite proactive yet. And you're going to see that like Ripley and aliens is a much more proactive character here. I think Ripley is taking all the information in and then formulating a plan and kind of reacting to that as would be her role is kind of like second in command of the Nostromo. So it's a much more, I would say, cerebral character and one I actually like a lot more. So I I get your point. Like when you talk about action movies and you have like feminine action heroes, they're basically like feminine Arnold Schwarzeneggers and feminine Sylvester Stallones. Is it it that you, is just writing a a character that's female, but giving them traditionally masculine traits, does that make them good? Why do they have to be masculine to be heroes? You know, I think that's part part of the conversation is like, what about other gender traits that aren't being highlighted? And, you know, as a non-athletic woman with big hips who has flat feet and asthma, I always sometimes look at these female action heroes and like really want to be like that, but know that I'm in a body mm-hmm. that will never allow me to do, you know, feats of strength. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like I can, I can, you know, I can do enough workouts to like make, keep myself healthy, but I'll never be this type of woman. And I've always sort of, I think in, in the back of my head, like, you know, growing up watching like Xena and Buffy and shit like that and having those be the kind of characters that I, that I idolized as a child like you know it it was it ended up I always ended up feeling like a disappointment to myself so I do think there's some interesting conversation around that um I also just think you know there wasn't that much thought going into it you know it was like let's write this central character who will do x y and z Mm -hmm. in this genre film and they will happen to be a woman yeah but I do think it's an interesting thing to pick apart and like what gender traits we we consider good and what gender traits we consider bad in our culture, you know, and like if we look mm-hmm. at Lambert and her reactions, but we consider them like cliched and bad, but why? like let's pick that apart, you know, I just think she's like, actually having a rational right <laughs> like this is like <laughs> right. a normal thing like you know i i'm 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 with Lambert on this one, yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, uh, yeah. why do we feel the way we do about these things? Yeah. I also want to say it, it, it would be a super interesting choice if it was a male character who rescued Jonesy. Mm, yes. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like that's like the one thing about that character that I 
just, it would read kind of differently, let's say. Like, yeah. it feels like no one questions, like, well, of course, like, Ripley's going to go for Jonesy, right? Like, it's kind of mm-hmm. a motherly, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, thing mm-hmm. to do. But, like, if it was yeah. Dallas, <laughs> it was like, no, we mm-hmm. got to get Jonesy. Right, right, you know, right. Even, yeah. Even when, when Harry Dean Stanton's character goes to rescue Jonesy, it's not to rescue him. It's because... If Jonesy is running around, it's going to throw off the yeah. um, motion detector that they've built. Right. So they're not going to be able to tell which which is which. I actually put in my notes, like, what if Parker tries to go after Jonesy? Like, what a different movie that mm-hmm. is at that point. I mean, I just, I mean, yeah, I think that there's a sort of a limit about this, right? Because I, I'm of yeah. the opinion, like, okay, I both believe you can't write a truly gender neutral character without having those constructs in your head and that they didn't think about it that much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We're thinking yeah. about it way more than they ever did, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that part of it is just like what Sigourney Weaver can do, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, we watched Galaxy Quest and also who she was as an actress and also what was expected of her as an actress in the type of body that she had in the kind of persona that she had. And we watched galaxy quest for the uh, space, the nation uh, podcast. And there's some really interesting interviews with Sigourney Weaver, where she talks about um, for that role, she wears um, fake boobs and a blonde wig. And she talks about how her experience of playing that role gave her an insight into what kind of career she might've had. If that's what Mm. she looked like. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't want to sound like I'm being super critical of this movie because I think without a movie, like, like I look at like the most recent female action figure that I have really found inspirational. It's Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey, specifically in Birds of Prey, because I don't really know much about the character outside of that, where there's a lot of like her feminine qualities that are embraced in that character. And I don't think you get to that point if you don't have movies like Alien and Aliens. Like this was a step along the road of society itself, understanding female characters and feminine empowerment. And when I watch this and I can separate it from aliens, there's a lot of like workplace empowerment and workplace agency she has in this movie that I find really inspirational that I really, really struggle with. Like, she's like, no, this is my role. She's telling her superior what she's supposed to do. And she's just saying it. And then when somebody challenges that, like she brings it up later, Mm. which I think is really empowering. And that doesn't have anything to do with like physicality yeah. or um which yeah. i i find really inspiring and that was the thing that i that really stood out to me this time is that she that's that's a different kind of agency that i think is really difficult for um women to show a lot of times mm-hmm. you know and i i will say sort of talking about how this movie hit me as i was you know going through my first marriage um this idea of being able to (laughs) speak your truth (laughs) Mm -hmm. of like feeling (laughs) like you have been abused or been you know verbally put in your place and then being able to bring it up later in a very rational and pretty calm I mean she gets angry actually you know what I'll say Mm -hmm. that like I've I was just talking the other day on some podcast, I think, uh, about how anger was like a, a anger was a thing that I really struggled with in that relationship. And I was not allowed to express it. I had, it. I'm not going to blame him for this really. Like, I just felt like, yeah, it's okay for him to be furious that I can't like, that's yeah, not mm-hmm. part of what my emotional vocabulary. And so it was often expressed in a more Lambert way. Like I just, I cried a lot. I was frustrated a lot. 
I didn't know how to articulate what I was feeling because what I was feeling was anger and I didn't mm-hmm. have a way to say it. I think that's such mm-hmm. an important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like that's one of been a real area of growth for me is just being able to be like, I'm angry right now. That is the emotion I am feeling is anger. <laughs> that, that was one of the biggest things that I worked on in therapy when I first started because I, I was just like, crying and frustrated and she would be like you're angry like mm-hmm. it is okay Women's tears are often anger mm-hmm. yeah and mm-hmm. like, you just you you literally are not socialized in a, in a you know to even know how to express it like to even understand articulate that that's what it is you know you just like it took weeks and weeks of therapy with this woman that it was my first experience with the therapy i mean even even just to begin to arch and this okay this is 2007 right so it's been a couple years since then and i'm still working on it but but you know to even begin to articulate that she was like oh what you're actually feeling is anger and you have to be able to express it in a healthy way or it's you're just going to keep internalizing it and i think yeah like in this movie it, it is just Ripley just so elegantly expresses how she feels and then does something about it in a way that's productive and just to see that happen and like and especially in a workplace dynamic where that is often so fraught and difficult it's just like oh cool <laughs> like it's, it's yeah you love to see it mm-hmm. talking about anger like I was listening to some little show called the losers club and <laughs> they were talking I think it was the episode on addiction and there were some people on it mm. But one of them brought up this <laughs> worksheet um, that I use a lot, like the anger iceberg. Like the mm-hmm. way I've been trained is like anger in and of itself isn't really an emotion. Like anger is like a hodgepodge of 20 different emotions that are really underneath it. Like whether you're usually it's sad, the two main ones, like being sad and being afraid, like sad because mm-hmm. you're not being heard and afraid because you feel like you're never going to have that opportunity to voice what you're feeling, but also like frustration, tiredness, grief. There's like tons of emotions that all comprise anger and how it comes out is this kind of expression of rage or anger. But really what's underneath it are two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe like 10 different emotions that are kind of all buried underneath the surface that are really difficult to put a name to. It's actually a sheet that I use pretty much with every single client no matter if they're like six or 60 years old like at some point that comes out and we explore that together and i I just think it's an interesting sidebar just in terms of the way that men and women in in their in the traditional way we have defined gender roles like are socialized to deal with those emotions and for men it's more socially acceptable to just be angry you know and a lot mm-hmm. of those you don't talk about all those complex emotions you just punch a hole in the wall because that's what men no. do and women cry and you know women are so manipulative with their tears mm-hmm. but really we're all just dealing with the same iceberg of emotions that we have not been allowed to process in a healthy way and i, I just like think for women the top of that iceberg is cut off mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all yep. we have is the sublimated stuff Mm-hmm. And it come in that again, like I women's tears are often anger because what I was feeling in those relationships, like because there was a few, not just that marriage that took me a while, right? But yeah, I was I was feeling rage. I was. And yet all I could tell you if you asked me was frustration mm-hmm. and maybe sadness and grief. But and I remember having the experience of being, you know, in, in his kind of hysterical tears. And I'll use that word, I guess, mm-hmm. intentionally. And feeling like this is, but I'm not sad. Like Mm -hmm. crying, 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 crying. And yet knowing that the emotion inside me wasn't sadness. Mm -hmm. 
and being mm-hmm. very confused about that, you know, like, mm-hmm. what is it that I'm feeling that's making me cry like this? So, and I, that's one thing that I think like, cause you see Ripley yell at, I believe it's Parker at one point. She's like, shut up. You're not listening. Like, I feel like she expresses that. And I, my reaction is like, oh shit, he's going to get mad at her. She's going to mm. be punished for this kind of rage. And that's the, when I mentioned like being uncomfortable, that's the kind of thing that it brings up in me, you know? Cause that was, that's a lot of reasons why I think many women don't show that rage. That iceberg has been cut off because we have such negative, uh, we get such negative responses to that in a lot of ways. Um, and that's one thing that I think is really great about this movie too, is that we have the character of Lambert. And like we said, like that's probably what I would be doing in this situation. That's probably how I would be acting. Um, and I think that we, this is one movie where like we are analyzing it right now. So I don't want to say it, but it's like, there's a point where I feel like it's been analyzed way past the intentions of the movie. And we kind of look at it as like this cultural touchstone of how we understood gender norms at the time. And I think there's a lot of value there. But I think like if I look at Ripley and Lambert, I'm glad that we have two different women reacting in different ways to a situation because it shows like women are not just one thing. And I think a lot of times this is coded as Ripley's the male character and Lambert is like acting like a woman would. And I think if we can look at like, they're just, they're humans and this is how humans would react regardless and Lambert's, of I get one gender. more time. Her ideas are correct. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are. Like, she's like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like, this is not good. <laughs> yeah. More people right, right. would have survived had they listened to Lambert. Right. You know? Exactly. True. Like, mm-hmm. listen to those instincts. They're there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is another thing women are trained not to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's a whole soapbox for another time. I mean, if they listen to Parker at the outset, he's like, I'm not a... You know, I'm not a search and rescue guy. Like, I'm yeah, here to fix mm-hmm. the ship. He's like, this isn't what we're contracted to do. I, uh, I found and, that conversation really interesting because, uh, you know, but, but please carry on. Well, you, you, there's a lot of instances, through, and Ripley included, there's a lot of instances in this movie where the superiors basically cut Brett and Parker off at the knees. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes, no, every yes. scene. It's like intentional, right. I think, in almost every scene. Like, they get ignored cut off told to shut up mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. well at the beginning of the movie it's like are they just being like lazy like they don't want to go to investigate the distress call because they're not getting their like adequately paid for it and it's like that's not laziness like they they, they, they are very specifically they not strike. a search and rescue yeah. thing they're not prepared to deal with whatever threat it is it's actually a very reasonable mm-hmm like job labor request, you know, to say like, no, I'm not going to fucking put myself in danger because the corporation the labor slowdown, a work slowdown is right. a tactic. Right. It's not like laziness. It's like, we're going to drag ass. So they realize that we're real. Our work is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're the only ones they point out. Moment, we're the only ones who know how to do this. Right. Exactly. There's a, a point where when they, when they tell Dallas and Ripley, like how long it's going to take to fix the ship. Like Ripley is like, well, I'm heading down there and now like, what the fuck are you going to do? And I think we've all mm-hmm. had that superior at work yes. who is like, asks you what it's going to take to get a job done. And when you tell them, they're like, well, let me look it over. It's like, this isn't your area of expertise. Like, why are you questioning me right now? And then when Ripley confronts Parker and Brett, like she definitely like, Pulls rank, not just to get them to try to work faster, but kind of reminds them where they sit in the pecking order. She's like, if you need me, I'll be back up on the, you know, like I'll be back up on the dock right now. And it's a very condescending way that she says it 
to the two of them. You know, there's a lot of tension between them in that scene. And then later on, when John Hurt is still in basically in stasis, where it's just the crew talking about what their potential actions could be. And Parker, I mean, Brett just keeps like yesing Parker, like whenever Parker makes a suggestion, which are good suggestions, like, why aren't we freezing him right now? And then just dealing this when we get back to Earth. And Brett is like, right. But rather than say that that should be an option, like Ripley immediately is like, you only, you always say right to whatever he says. Like, she immediately questions him. Dallas doesn't even look at them throughout that scene. Like, Dallas won't make eye contact with them. And it's just, it's Scott's direction. It's really wonderful in this scene, showing where everybody sits in the pecking order and what the ruling class or management class thinks of the the blue-collar folks in this. Mm-hmm. Dallas won't look him in the eye, and then he gets up and walks over to Lambert and starts asking Lambert for, like, what do you think we should do at this point? <laughs> Yeah. And that's the only person who'll actually, because he sees at some level, like sees Lambert on the same level as he is. And it's interesting because if you if you look at it from just a gender perspective, it feels like um, Parker and Brett are being like kind of like macho creeps to to Ripley. But if you look at it from like a a job like management level perspective, the dynamic really shifts. Because I think when I was younger and I saw this movie, I was just like. Ripley is perfect and beautiful and all these men are being assholes to her. And then when, after you've like been in the world for a long time and been in jobs, like you see that you see the dynamics in more of a like labor perspective. And I think if Ripley was, was played by a man, you would just see them as like condescending middle management, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Well, what we're seeing is intersectionality. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, like, mm-hmm. it, and that's, and that's the one of the ways that I think by not giving a ton of thought to maybe some of the things we're thinking really hard about, they show what it's yeah. really like in the world, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that you can have like class conflict, you know, intersect with, you know, gender roles that are yes. restrictive. And yeah, that one scene where the, the right scene is really good. And also Parker is Parker, like Lambert, is making excellent suggestions and a lot of people would have lived had they listened <laughs> to him. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I I love that scene. And I also love that direction of that scene. And in in the memory documentary, um, they talk about how I was gonna mention this when we we're talking about auteur theory, like that this movie like does Altman shit before Altman. Yes. Like, all this naturalistic dialogue and sound that's all over the place and like lots of multiple conversations going on, all of which are kind of important. Important and it's just played out like it would be in real life, which is mm-hmm. messy, which is like, you know, you don't have clear lines of communication. You don't have clear alliances. Like, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, because another thing is that Parker and Rhett would have been better off had they cooperated a little bit, right? Like, I empower their work slowdown for sure, right? Mm-hmm. But like, it would have been better and <laughs> everybody be kind of been just listening to each other. And I also want to point out, like, Parker and Brett, like, when Ripley's so condescending, they use the literally the tools that they are working with to, like, kind of talk back to her, mm-hmm. you know, um, by, like, mm-hmm. opening that steam hiss mm-hmm. thing up, you mm-hmm. know. Like, yeah, the labor stuff in this movie, which I never saw until, you know, relatively recently, um, has come to really speak to me, especially though... I have to say what resonates with me is that idea of being a woman working in a middle management position. Mm-hmm. In a male-dominated. Mm-hmm. In a male-dominated, you know, field of, like, journalism where you have to have male people that you're managing and male people that you're talking to who are above you. Yeah, the impossible mm-hmm. bind that, yes. that is. 
Exactly. Oh, my God. I mean, because, yeah, that that's that tension that I'm picking up on in those moments. And I think to Jen's point of it making me feel a little uncomfortable, it definitely does. Like, But I think that's like a new view of this movie for me as an adult who has been in the work world for long enough and been exactly in that, like surrounded by dudes, like in video production and in the agency world. You know, yeah, exactly. You're managing men and your bosses are men. And it's fucking awful. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And it's like the way the workplace understands um, power and like authority, I yes. feel like is a lot of male traits. And so like I have kind of found myself in that position too. And so I've had to take on some characteristics that I really makes me feel uncomfortable just uh-huh. to be taken seriously. Exactly. Like know? the way you have to communicate as a woman and it's like you're second guessing any little bit of punctuation you put on things or second guessing. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just, it's all gets very complicated. <laughs> It does. And the conversation with Ash, I said it's very civil. And there's part of me that wonders if Ripley wants to like scream at him, but she just can't, (laughs) you know, and like she knows that this isn't this is going to make me look like a a crazy woman in quotes. And so this that's why it has to be civil, you know. Oh, it's it's interesting because Ash is programmed with built in misogyny. I mean, it's Mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. he is programmed to dismiss anything that Ripley has to say. I mean, he has very clear parameters what he's there to do. Like, he's there to find this life force and let it on board no matter what the cost is. And at the same time, he can't expose anyone to that. So it's a character that works in the shadows, but he's built with a mistrust or misogynistic tendencies towards women. And it mm-hmm. and it's funny, my own work experience like for the past eight years I've worked in like women dominated fields. So every supervisor I've had, whether it be in like health and human services, whether it be in the mental health counseling industry or within like the education field, it's like I haven't had a male boss in almost a decade. Mm-hmm. And to is be it honest, better or worse, Mike? <laughs> there's there's not really a difference. Like management is management at a certain point. And what it looks like from the inside is probably different. No. So like the the supervisors I've had tend to have like the same traits and, you know, there's subtle differences in their management style overall, but shit always rolls downhill no matter what industry you're in. Well, Mm -hmm. that's just a whole other sidebar that I could go down, but I'm so fascinated by the way that we work. I don't know if you guys listen to any of Esther Perel's podcasts, but she's got this new one that I haven't listened to extensively, but it's called How's Work. And she's a a relationship therapist who wrote um, Mating in Captivity and does another podcast on, on relationship dynamics. And I think so much of work uh, relationships play out in the same way that actual human relation, like romantic relationships, friendships, you know, these kind of, th- I think that, but it's this, this world where we just refuse to self-reflect and we all just adhere to roles as they have been imitated to us. And so I just mm-hmm. think that like, you know, just the, the identities that you assume at work, there's just a lot of unpacking that ought to happen. And I think like, I, I think that every workplace should have an assigned therapist who just like, <laughs> watches everything and then takes people aside and then like but that's just like something because I just sometimes I just get so frustrated with dynamics at work and I'm like why are we all doing this why are any Mm -hmm. of us doing this we're all getting paid shit to do shit to make other people rich and like you know and and I think that even in when you get into human services you get a lot of like or nonprofit spaces you get a lot of like the battles are so bitter because the stakes are so small so you get a lot of like personality dynamics happening because people aren't getting compensated adequately Um, so I'm just fascinated by those 
kind of workplace dynamics. And even as, as, as women, you know, like what we were just saying, you get books like lean in and like, you, you know, you're supposed to take on these masculine characteristics to be taken seriously. And so you end up with a lot of female bosses that are total assholes. And it's like, but what's the deal with mm-hmm. that? Like, let's unpack where this is coming from. Oh, I'll stop talking. I'm sorry. This is just something I think about yeah. a lot and have never verbalized. Go on. And number one is like, so one of the reasons why Star Trek is a utopian universe is they have Deanna Troy, right? Like, they yes, have like a, they have a on-call like counselor. Yes, um, I love it. And the, I love it. The other thing I would say is um, as someone who's had, like I, I got in journalism because I didn't want to manage people and I didn't want to be managed. Like I know that I'm, those are neither of those things are in my skill set. but having had to become someone who's like a fucking job creator, like managing women is actually harder for me. Really? Yeah. And it, it has to do with the fact that you form, I think I shouldn't talk about women. I'll say that I tend to want to relate to people in a personal way. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Like, how's your day? Oh my God, you're going through a really tough time, you know, like, like, let's mm-hmm. talk about our feelings and let's talk about like how you're really doing. Mm-hmm. And that, so that means I'm, I can be a pretty shitty manager when it comes time to actually give direction and correction, which is yeah. part of being mm-hmm. a manager. And it's the part that I don't like. Yep. And it may be because I've been socialized to not want to tell people what to do, you know, but mm-hmm. that's yep. part of, that's yeah. the job. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I've had to really work on giving people bad news yeah. and giving people oh, like, I'm not man. happy with what you're doing for me right now. Mm-hmm. And even the saying that, like, I've had to work on being like, you're not performing your duties right now. How mm-hmm. I fucking feel about right. it is what I want to say mm-hmm. that I'm mm-hmm. not happy or you've disappointed me. But the message that needs to come to that person is you have these responsibilities that you are not fulfilling adequately. Right. And you have mm-hmm. to like not- strip all that emotion out of it in order to make that effective of a, as a communicate. Yeah. <laughs> and to make it less loaded yeah. for the other person. Because one of the things that I've had to learn the hard way is that when I talk about it in a feeling centered way, that's not, that puts a lot on the other person to respond in a feeling centered way, to take on some mm-hmm. feelings when really they just need to, to, to do the things that we asked to do. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Oh God. Yeah. And when you get into like, it's also like, I don't know, cause I used to manage writers and editors in an editorial department and it's like so much of it is subjective, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. you're, tra- you, yeah, you have a style guide, you have certain things, but then you're like trying to give people subjective feedback and then also maintain these positive relationships with them. There's so much that goes into that and it's so stressful. <laughs> that, that's it. I'm just really glad I'm not managing people right now. We, I can bring this back to the movie, which is one of the things that I've had to do is sort of be a little more like Ripley in that like, what are the things that have been laid out for me Yes, that I can go mm-hmm. back to and be like, this is not quarantine procedure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just like, going to start I saying take, that at work. Take this. T- yeah. I, yeah, that would be an awesome thing to say. <laughs> that being like code of like, you're fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> like I, it is to like, it's been really helpful for me to think of things in terms of contracts. Like this person is contracted to do X, Y, Z. They are not doing X, Y, Z. Therefore, mm-hmm. I get to tell them this. And it's not about mm-hmm. whether they're a good person or I'm a good person or how I feel or how they feel. I had got some great advice actually from my AA sponsor who happens to be a therapist as well. I blacked out. Um because <laughs> <laughs> I was I have, I have some, you know, pr- people that I work with that are difficult who doesn't, right? And one particular couple of particular relationships that have gotten too emotional. She said what you need to do is listen to what they say and not how they say it. Like listen to the information mm. that's being conveyed to you mm-hmm. and then convey information back and try to just take everything out that's 
how about how people feel about things, which feels really sometimes can feel mean to me that I think mm-hmm. it's actually gentle. It helps. Yeah. It helps you respond in a, in a more measured way instead of getting caught up in the flow of emotion and then accidentally being mean to them or being angry or reacting to some other thing that it reminds you of. And again, yeah. that's what Ripley is doing. I can see we can go. We can, we can take yeah. it back. <laughs> we can. Yeah. And I mean, I see that kind of a lot in this movie because I mean, that's how you can continue to work with people mm-hmm. too, because, you know, we've all had days where like my emotions are very close to the surface right now. And, you know, if I do react in a way, like one of the things I learned from my boss that, um, she was a pretty terrible boss, but she, one of the good pieces I got out of working with her was she said, I don't have to respond to this right now. I can let my emotions kind of calm down for a minute. And then, and that's part of why I love texting and I don't like talking on the phone is like, sometimes I can, I can let myself decompress a little bit. And I think we see Ripley do that when she talks to Ash, you know, she doesn't go like charging down saying, why did you open the fucking door when the door is already open? She just brings it up later. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this this team is, yes, there are all of these dynamics and there's an air of condescension and there's like definitely a class structure there. But when the shit really hits the fan, most of mostly they work together. Aside from the breach of going in and breaking that quarantine protocol, like Parker and um, Lambert like attack Ash to defend Ripley when she's getting attacked. Like they don't stop and think, Oh, I was pissed off earlier. You know, like I feel like they do work together reasonably well, which I think is really refreshing to see. And also think kind of shows the humanity in this group that separates them from Ash, you know, like they don't see each other as expendable. And even Ripley, like when she's saying we can't break quarantine, she's not saying like, fuck you guys don't come in. She's saying like this, these are rules to protect everyone, you know? And on that Mm -hmm. note, I can understand why they would want to break quarantine, like on that forming Mm -hmm. attachments with another person, like, this is like seven persons that have been, I think they were like 10 months away from Earth to begin with. So you can only imagine these are multi-year excursions that they're going on and you're going to form some sort of attachment with these persons. Um, I mean, a lot of times we spend more time at work than we do with our own families and you can grow mm-hmm. very close with some of your coworkers. So I think we've all had situations where we know what the rule is and we understand why the rule is there. But in the moment, there's like a very human cost if you don't break that rule for some reason. And in that moment, with John Hurt having the face hugger on him and nobody knows what the creature is, nobody knows what it's doing to him, nobody knows what's going to be done to him. Like their first thought is like, let's get him some help. And I wonder what it would be like to be on the other end of that where you're standing there asking for help and someone is saying, sorry, I can't let you in, even though Ripley Mm -hmm. is right. like, And she has a more global perspective of it. Like, we may lose one person if I don't let him in, but I don't want to lose seven people. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's not wrong. It's in its... I couldn't make that decision. Like, honestly, like, I would have made the other decision i would have i would have let her him in and i would have been responsible for six other people dying at that point it's the train tracks thing like do you divert the train for to kill five people or to kill one person yeah, <laughs> it depends which five. Um, i'm gonna jump in to do up the plug for for all mankind here yes. <laughs> is, this comes up you know like female decision making mm-hmm. about balancing lives is is one of the interesting things that happened when you populate the NASA space program with women from the start. Hmm. So. Interesting. I am very intrigued. Show. I don't know if we, we that's for all mankind. I'm not sure if we talked about that on mic or off mic. 
Oh yeah, who's off? I think it was before yeah, we yeah. started. But so, yeah, yeah. Um, Podcast listeners, I've been that- binging for all mankind. It's really. <laughs> And it sounds really good. And I'm going to watch it now, too. Um, But I think that's what humanity is, you know, and that's um, like weighing the emotional cost versus the rules, because that's also hindsight bias, which is something that I've learned a lot about in my recovery is like blaming yourself for understanding the full picture of a situation when there was no way you could see the full picture when you made Mm -hmm. the decision, you know, and that's I think Ripley is in that position. And she just leans on kind of on what you were saying, like, this is what I've been given. These are the rules. This is my role. And this is what I do. But she's not alone in that decision. And and I think humanity is weighing those costs. Whereas we see no. Ash who just like, it's expendable. This is my mission. And everything goes to mm-hmm. supporting that mission. And he was yeah. programmed by people. I mean, as the series gets into, of course, throughout the this five, like later installments and stuff, there is, there is a group of people that also may be robots. I don't know. I get confused when we get into the later sequels. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the whole thing is like AI is, is programmed by humans. So they're making decisions that somebody wanted them to make. Yeah, I actually think it's really interesting to sort of put this in the context of, you know, is Ripley a man or a, was she written mm-hmm. as a man or a woman? Because I feel like it's a very stereotypically male decision to be like, mm-hmm. I'm going to save the crew versus the one person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but going for the cat. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not gendered at all, but I feel like it again would have been read, would have read differently had it been yeah. someone else going for the cat. Um, but then I also want to say that we leave no one behind is such a macho thing to say, you know, like it's, it, there's a weird tension here, right? Because it's the man who can make the decision. We're going to let, you know, one person dies so that many survive. But it's also, again, this trope that I see that for all mankind, it comes up a lot. Who are, Mm -hmm. who are we going to save? What kind of measures are we going to go through in order to save this person? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as someone who loves genre, I mean, obviously this is like a trope that no, I don't can't think of like a a good movie that break, like, except for maybe Star Trek Undiscovered Country, like where, like, it's okay to sacrifice like that one person, the the hero makes the decision to sacrifice the one person. There are heroes mm-hmm. that make a decision to sacrifice themselves or the one person that makes yeah. a decision to sacrifice themselves. But for someone to be a hero, to maintain hero status and still say, sorry, like that person's going to have to die. Like we don't let that happen in America. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you got to save you got to go back for you know Private Ryan, which I hate that movie because yeah. of the whole the whole the principle of that movie just enrages me. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what we really do. In, what, what we really do in America is just let everyone die, especially well, yeah, right. the most in vulnerable. In real life, what we do is like fuck everybody. You know, especially right. yeah. if you mm-hmm. if you're if you don't have agency, fuck you. Like there, there's you, like an interesting mythology there that it's like the Amer- the American GI hero going through enemy lines to save the one person when in reality we actually let everyone die and actively kill others <laughs> it's like yeah. it's really mm-hmm. funny <laughs> sorry yeah I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah not that's so funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm i have become the joker but, anyway right right, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and so maybe we can talk about Ash a little bit because I feel like he he's one that really like when we think about this movie, I think a lot of times like the the scariest scene in quotation marks is the chestbuster scene. But the scene where he it's revealed that he is actually an android, that's the one that really it's really unsettling. It gets under my skin. The way he attacks Ripley is really unsettling is the word I keep coming back to. And it's, it's gross. I also, um, the scarf for light podcast just talked about not liking milk for this reason. I also (laughs) don't like milk. So I think there's like a little bit of things that are triggered for me there, but it's Ash is just like, and I was watching this time knowing, you know, kind of looking for his mannerisms and they're like Ridley Scott keeps cutting to his eyes while they're Mm -hmm. discussing what to do before we know. And I think it's, it's so menacing and it's so like insidious. And I think it's just kind of a representation of this like male in quotation marks, decision-making of like, this is the objective. And, uh, you know, with that, I kind of talked about earlier, but yeah, just point out capitalism has no problem making that decision. And that's sort of maybe Mm -hmm. where Ash is, right? Mm -hmm. Like humans, men and women, we can say have trouble making that decision. Right. But Mm -hmm. systems have no trouble. And that's the sort of when we say America is happy to leave people behind. It's not America, really. You know, it's it's the system that we live under. It's the it's the cost Mm -hmm. benefit, you know, Mm -hmm. ratio. It's the it's the millions of tiny decisions that get made that cause soldiers to have to carry out unhuman missions and then come back to a to an environment where they kill themselves. Right. Because they don't, they're not cared for. They're given millions of dollars of training, right? And millions of dollars Mm -hmm. worth of equipment to carry out the whims of imperialism. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and they're human, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have this incredibly high suicide rate, Mm -hmm. especially among elite forces, by the way, which is something I learned relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Like the the people Mm -hmm. that have been trained the most, that have been given the most resources when in the context of the military are the ones that like suffer. I mean, everyone mm-hmm. suffers, mm-hmm. but like, you know. Yeah, they're, they're the, yeah, they have the, you know, just statistically the, if the highest suicide rates, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a whole rabbit hole I could talk about for a great Yeah, sorry. Time. Yeah, it's no, no, no. It's mental health. Yeah. No, but it's, it's super relevant. Yeah. It's super relevant to this because we're seeing all this in this movie. And that's what part of like, when a movie that I don't know set out to talk about all these things can withstand this level of analysis and still have something to say. I think that's, that's good writing, you know? And I think that I do too. you see this all kind of play out on this little micro scale in this film. Like I would say actually, so to get back to this analogy of like elite forces and having to make these calculations and systems making the calculations, like one of the things that happens, they call it moral cost, I think, mm-hmm. um, is when you're in this system and you make the decision to like only t- to balance out the lives, not save the Because in real life, also the army tends to be like, nope, th- that person's fucked, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. um, or you make the decision um, like one of the, it, so actually most of this information comes from me from the really good podcast, The Line, um, in which one of the things it's pointed out is um, like Navy SEALs get very accurate information but not correct information which is to say they're given like it's to they're given orders to assassinate people and they're given like that person's home that person's schedule that person's like everything about them to make that assassination basically they don't call it assassination but you know that's what it is to make it as easy and efficient as possible but sometimes it turns out that's not the right person right Right. oops Mm -hmm. oops all berries And the moral cost for that's what causes this like incredibly like tragic kind of chain reaction where the person goes back home and it's left outside of the system and has to deal with the moral cost of having done something 
that the system was perfectly okay with, Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. the human is not. And I guess I kind of think about that back to the discussion of workplace dynamics and even Ripley, which is that I wonder what the cost would have been for Ripley had she made that decision to, to let the person, you know, to let, uh, to not to break quarantine and yeah. you had to watch that those people die. Yeah, those yeah, three people die. die, and she wouldn't have she wouldn't have known at that point what Ash was planning. She wouldn't have known what you know what might have happened if she hadn't made that decision. She would just know that she watched the three of them get killed by this xenomorph. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sucks. Sucks to be human. It does. It does. Well, okay. And so that's the thing. Like Ash is the one carrying these corporate orders out. And I think I've referred to him as making decisions, but he's not. He is programmed to do this. And I think that it's telling that the company, it's like what we were saying, like the tiny decisions along the way, like they can divorce themselves from the emotional cost of these actions because they did not send a human being to carry them out. They sent a program to do it, you know? I was going to say, so there's, I think I made this observation in in the other podcast, which is that, so Ash talking about the perfect killing machine. It's also a perfect creature of capitalism, right? Like the xenomorph yes. is capitalism, but so is Ash. Yes. Ash is the perfect mm-hmm. expression of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Ash is the one who's making only decisions that he's been programmed to make, only decisions that the system wants him to make, you know? So mm-hmm. the irony of like Ash talking about this perfect creature, no, Ash is the perfect creature. Right. right? He's, he's, mm-hmm. it's, actually, it's actually like he's, he's talking about this, but he's really talking about himself and he's really yeah. talking about the system he's a part of. Therefore, like who's the real enemy is it the monster or is it us maybe oh no it's capitalism (laughs) it's capitalism yeah Yeah. no 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 the the, Mm -hmm. the monster is is the rapacious maw of capitalism yes so that's the tagline Mm -hmm. in space no one can hear you scream dot 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 also capitalism is the monster (laughs) oh in space no one can hear you organize (laughs) yes yes (laughs) i think kind of anna just hit it there like anna just hit my I was going to say about Ash, like the only creature he admires is the xenomorph, specifically because it's free of any emotion. It's just, it eats, it reproduces, and it kills. And that's all it does. And he admires it for its simplicity. One of the fascinating facets of Ash is in that chestburster scene. And Anna, you had talked about how like Altman-esque it is, where you have these layered conversations over one another. Like they're basically preparing like a last supper before they go back into stasis. And you have Kane kind of joking with Parker and Dallas and everyone is relieved. And you, when you cue to Ash in those scenes, he's not really joining in on the conversation. Like you just, they pull very tight to his expression before anything happens. And he's watching and he's waiting because he knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And he's just waiting for it to happen. And it's just a really fascinating like tip off into Ash's character before it's actually revealed. And again, it just Scott's way of telling the audience so much and allowing them to kind of make informed decisions when they're watching the movie. And I think that's like a really wonderful character tip off right there where everyone else is bantering. And then when Kane starts to have convulsions, Ash still waits before he jumps in. Like he, has a good five second pause where he just observes what's going on before he springs to action. So as to not kind of give the game away at that point. Boy, this movie mm-hmm. benefits so much from rewatch. There's yeah. so many little things you can pick up on. And it's just, it you really get, does. you don't get many filmmakers as with the kind of level of detail that like a Ridley Scott is going to give you. And I think it would be 
even at a young age, even, you know, God, it's 50 years old, um, 40 some odd years old, you just don't get that level of filmmaking in a lot of people. I don't know many other persons that could have made this movie this well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to suggest maybe a transition here because what I would love to talk about for sure before we end is some of those details that um, only become, con- you, you're only conscious of them on all the rewatches. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And because the sound design, you mentioned sound design, Laura, I think Mm -hmm. they talk about it a bit. Again, everyone, if you watch the movie, you should also watch Memory, the documentary about it, because it will unlock a lot of this stuff, including sound design. And uh, the thing that, you know, like floored me (laughs) because I didn't realize what an integral part of the movie it is, is the breathing of the ship. They actually have like this constant sound that that's, I mean, I suppose it logically it's the ventilators or something, but there is a sound of breath to the ship, which is, you know, the ship is another character. The ship is alive. And then you mentioned like the, the water and pulleys system at the chain room. (laughs) Yeah. The chain room, whatever. Um, (laughs) But a couple of decisions that were made to be just like, we're not, we don't care about making this make sense. Um, but mm-hmm. they really contribute to like the overall feel of the movie, which is again that room, and then also the wind in the spaceship. Which where the fuck would the wind come from? <laughs> that opening? So I did fall asleep watching this movie last night. But um, the first five minutes or ten minutes of it, where nothing happens, is is some of my favorite parts of the movie. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's just, just mm-hmm. gorgeous. And um, there's the drinking bird, right? Which makes no sense. And then there's mm-hmm. the wind ruffling papers. Right. And then my favorite mm-hmm. bit is actually when the distress call, so-called distress call, which now we are not sure if it's a distress call, right? The, the text flows over the faceplate of a helmet. So it's like mm-hmm. no human is in there, right? Like it's being mm-hmm. like displayed on a human face, but there's a total lack of humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's just, ah, like I, I, yeah, Laura, like you're saying, you just want to yell, like, ah, it's so yeah, cool. It's so cool. It's good. It, yeah. it reminds me a bit of 2001, the way that the, it's like, it's a, I mean, just the way that the ship is a character and the way that they take so much time setting up these almost like static shots of different parts of the ship and like letting you, letting all these things be unveiled to you. But it's, it's so much grimier and more claustrophobic in some ways than 2001. 2001 is like this very, like, I mean, Clean. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just that Kubrick, like, let's make everything as sterile. clean and sterile as possible. And this, you have that those little touches of of Geiger's art direction, and you have just such a, I don't know, I, it's like it's just it's such a vibe, and I cannot verbalize, but I love it. Like, I could just sit and watch that beginning on a loop and just want to like soak it in. And isn't it mm. weird that the technology seems fine? Yeah, even though it's completely like uh, anachronistic. I, like, at I this love, point. Like, um, just the idea of like the different way that like sci-fi things have envisioned technology and the different aesthetics is just a whole thing I could go down a rabbit hole with, but I love the aesthetic of this technology. And like, especially when he, um, Tom Scarrett goes into that room with all the amber light mm-hmm. and has all those little pinpricks of amber, just it's all one color. And you're like, what is the function of any yeah. of this? Like, if you think about it, but I just love it. I just, it does. It feels very real on some level. I don't, it's, I love it. Well, this, this, it's two years removed from Star Wars. And, you know, we, we talked about we talked about Kubrick in 2001 and that aesthetic of everything's shiny and pristine and gorgeous and, like, just out of the box. Like, everything has that new spaceship smell, like, when you watch, 
2001. And Lucas was one of the first persons in sci-fi and fantasy to envision space as a place where there was going to be like a working class and things are going to be dirty and grimy. And like the rebels have like red bear equipment and the millennium Falcon is like a hunk of junk. Like it can barely get going. You have, you know, uh, tattooing where everything is dusty and dirty and Two years later, Alien comes out and it kind of replicates that aesthetic, but it does it under the guise of like being like a blue collar movie at that point. Like it makes sense that the technology in Alien looks old and beat up um, and everything has like a layer of like oil and filth over it because like they're basically mining for resources. They're Mm -hmm. like mining for oil. It's going to look dirty. It's going to look gross. Um, it's going They're to rednecks, roughnecks. Yeah, basically that. Mm. What I also love about the aesthetic of this movie and, and Geiger's designs is like the vastness of space and really how small and unimportant humanity is. You compare the opening shot of like Star Wars and you have like the little ship go, then you have the Imperial Destroyer and it just goes and it goes and it goes. And you're like, oh, the scope of that is pretty incredible, but then you can envision how many persons are inside of there making things operate. Like there's literally thousands of stormtroopers inside of there helping that thing go. Alien has that moment early on where you see the Nostromo and it looks like a small city, like the way Geiger designed that. It looks like a city. There are seven people inside of it. You only see a small portion of that ship it feels like it would be so easy to get lost inside of that ship. You think of the alien ship they find in LV-426. The inside of that ship looks like hollowed out bones. It looks like mm-hmm. a rib cage structure where everything has been boiled and then lacquered over. It looks like you're walking inside a colossus at that point, something that is almost godlike. In the belly of the beast. Oh, it, that's mm-hmm. the perfect expression. There is just like a sense of wonder and vastness to this movie. Yes. And I think part of the reason I don't love Aliens as much is it revisits the same world, but everything feels so much more, even though all the action is bigger and there's more of it and there's more aliens and more explosions and, you know, there's some great one-liners and it's a damn fine movie, but everything mm-hmm. feels so much smaller and more contained than it does in Alien. Yeah. Different approach to use of sets, different aesthetic choices, just different sensibilities behind it. I feel like this one is very intentional. Aliens Mm -hmm. just is more like what will service the action sequences. They're more like set pieces. I think Mm -hmm. a little bit out to our maybe analysis or talk, which is that it's just interesting, like that, yes, the sequel prequels are so much more director and actor driven, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, Aliens and a whatever, like all the, all the Sigourney Weaver movies, except for Alien, are franchise, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and driven by the needs of a franchise. Whereas like Prometheus isn't so much. And I have to say, like, what makes those Michael Fassbinder is what makes those movies for me. Oh, yeah. Like mm-hmm. I I just he's just he you can't he's compulsively watchable, right? Oh, I just have such a boner for him. It's like he's aesthetically pleasing, <laughs> which is part of his character. Yes. You know, it's part yes. of the character to be so aesthetically pleasing. And he's just like, I mean, like, 
I mean, yeah, like I, I just watchable and get, it, it's an Android character who he managed to give layers to, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the layers are programmed into him. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, like I, I, the reason I love those movies is because of him. And I don't think they're as rich, though, as texts, maybe as Alien is. I mean, it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to talk about them and in, in terms of that. Yeah, Covenant, but, I would say, isn't. Covenant's yeah. a good movie, but it definitely it suffered from like Prometheus didn't hit the way they wanted it to. Prometheus, I think, is close to Alien in terms of what it's asking, and it's a director at a very different time in his life. Almost act, he's asking like big picture, end of life stuff, like what happens mm-hmm. after this, and where do we come from? And they're fascinating questions. But and he said it's not really an Alien prequel as much as it exists in that world. But what everybody wanted was an alien prequel. And I think that's what you get with Covenant, Mm. which is still fascinating. And it's a, I have a huge problem with it because it posits the theory that like David is the one responsible for creating xenomorphs when there's evidence in Alien that they've existed for eons. And also, I think that makes them less interesting as monsters at that point, like having that kind of. Frankenstein explanation. Although then they are creatures of capitalism for real. (laughs) Yeah, they are. I mean, I just, I find that less fascinating than like this kind of unknowable ancient thing that doesn't care about you per se versus something that's created to make a buck. And that's, that's my main issue with the, with the Prometheus and the, whatever it's called with the, after the asterisk covenant is that anytime you try to do origin stories as a writer, or you try to get really deep into the mythos of Mm -hmm. something, you lose some of that mystery. What I think is, is, I mean, that's just a general thing I have with storytelling in general. And that, you know, I think Ridley Scott really did have some things he wanted to explore that are super interesting. And I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of value to those movies, but you're never going to be able to capture that raw, just mystery and and allure of the original alien. Because when you just Mm -hmm. see the alien and the cavern of in the cathedral of bone and it sort of bespeaks this ancient evil and and you don't and I, i'm always a fan of like we talked about in our blair witch episode you know setting up the lore but then don't tell us the whole story because mm-hmm. then you just have so much more fun with it i think somebody who does this kind of thing really well is david lynch with the twin peaks milieu <laughs> i don't know what to call mm-hmm. it the mythos i mean he's him and mark snow packed so much shit into there that you can investigate but they never really try to tie it all up in a bow and i'm just some people hate that shit i'm a fan you know and, and i think yeah. so, some and i and i just am always react negatively when somebody really tries to like set it all up and explain it all out and stuff and you you could I don't I don't actually have any issue on paper with what he did with those movies. I just I'm never going to enjoy them on the same level that yeah. I enjoy mm. Alien. Uh, it's also like it doesn't look like the 70s anymore. It lo- yeah. Everything looks so different now in the way that we make films with digital cameras and, and blue screen and everything. I just I'm a fucking little baby about that yeah. kind of stuff. I like practical effects. I like sets, you know, give me that all day. But that's just me. Yeah, that's the thing is when you watch alien and you realize like people are walking around in this, like somebody built this shit Mm -hmm. and that just inspires so much more awe and wonder than like, we'll build a small Mm -hmm. piece of it and then green screen the rest of it in. Yeah. Well, it affects the actors. They talk about that again in the, in the documentary about how the actors were were kind of experiencing that awe for real firsthand, Mm -hmm. you know, as it's happening. And it maybe the, you know, 
acting can be great acting in a box or not in a box, but <laughs> that maybe there, there is something to like having that awe, like being true. Yeah. yeah. Sort of mm-hmm. like it turns out the chestbuster scene did surprise everyone. Like they knew something was coming, yeah. yes, but yes. weren't sure what. So, mm-hmm. and you that's, know, that's, that's just that intangible fabric of filmmaking is there's all these little elements that go into creating the whole. And when you start to change the processes and you start, I mean, like, I get it. Budgets, I get it. Like new technology, I totally get it. But like, I just, I'm such a purist when it comes to that. I, even when I watched something about the making of the Lord of the Rings movies and they were just talking about like that set with Rohan with the horses and all that shit where they actually like built this big like s- sort of framework of a city out in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand and just like the awe of walking onto those sets and how it affected the entire cast and crew. Like you just can't capture that. It's lightning in a bottle. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, this is my old man corner. <laughs> well, one of the things that I think about um, when I think about the backstory, and I'm not nearly as familiar with the rest of the franchise, although I have seen Prometheus and Covenant. I think the only one I haven't seen is three. Um, but there's like, with the first two movies, there's like a colonizer narrative also. And there's like the who deserves to live and whose life is more valuable, like on a bigger scale than just the crew is expendable, you know, and mm-hmm. it kind of um, goes into something that I want to mention, but I don't know if we want to really dig into this because that might be a much longer conversation. But there's also like a, a reproductive rights narrative in this movie because like the other decision that Ash is decision in quotation marks that Ash is making is yes, we're going to sacrifice Cain because of what is growing on him. And Cain knows what is growing inside him. And when I think about like Mm -hmm. the system that tells me what should happen to my body based on what is growing inside me and they don't, care about what happens to me. They care about the thing inside me, which I think this, the thing that really stuck out to me now, and it's just this, like whose life is valuable and what life on a grander scale do we, like what genres of life do we consider more a higher priority than others? And here's where the gender fuckery, as it were, really (laughs) does a number on people, which, because it's male pregnancy and male rape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was, when I did this um, movie on Space the Nation with my co-host Dan Dresner, who is a cisgender dude, he was talking about how uncomfortable all this made him. And I was like, uh-huh. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's like a deliverance moment. Like, it's oh, like, is, is yeah. being forcibly impregnated and then forced to bear the child kind of like feel bad? Yeah. yeah. It's a little icky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it feels pretty bad. So, yeah. <laughs> we talked about that a lot on my other show. Like we asked, like, does this movie have the same cultural cachet 40 plus years later, if that isn't included in there, the fact that it is like male rape, which is something you typically don't see. Mm-hmm. And talking about like the making of this movie, like O'Bannon wrote the first 30, everything basically up to the um, chest burster scene and got stuck. He was couch surfing over his friend, Rob Schuster's house. Schuster had a nightmare, woke up and woke up Bannon and said, this is what we're going to do. And it just basically hit him from there. Okay, but we're going to deliberately now, this is where the whole idea of like, was everybody truly gender neutral? We're going to deliberately have it so that a male is impregnated because that's something that's not done. And it's going to knock persons on their asses at that point. And it's going to make people, men in particular, so uncomfortable. So therefore we need to go this route. 
uh, and do it. Mm -hmm. There's that moment later on, like when Lambert dies, it's heavily implied. Um, It's much like the Evil Dead a couple years later (laughs) with Sam Raimi, where you have like the tree rape scene uh, two Mm -hmm. years later. It's heavily implied like the, and I don't, you know, like, Giger, I mean, Giger was prosecuted for penis landscape, the El- the Dead Kennedys insert for their album mm-hmm. Frankenchrist. No, he was like lambasted for that. Like Giger had a thing about penises. So oh, yeah. it's, there's no, there's <laughs> no. Speaking of the chestbuster scene too. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it looks like a little, you know, little cock. A tiny little penis in her yeah. going, It's like, don't touch it. Um, so, It'll explode. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. Excellent. Um, it's, you know, the, the xenomorph like looks very phallic and it looks like a machine, but it's like wet and slimy. Like it's no accident why it's designed like that. And that scene with Lambert, the ick factor is all the more greater because it's really the only victim in the movie that the alien takes its time with. It almost, almost seems to take pleasure in her discomfort in that moment. And I think Mm -hmm. that ramps up the uncomfortability so much more in that moment. And I don't want to pick on Dan too much, but (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting. He's a wonderful co-host and bantering with him about his, he's a little to the, to the right of me and probably all of us, but it's been interesting to sort of have that, this stuff come up with him. Um, He didn't notice the Lambert, like how the tentacle goes between her legs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how did you yeah. not? <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, what were you looking at if yeah. you didn't notice that? And I feel like it, I mean, again, I don't want to like pick on him, but I think that that is a blind, I mean, I think maybe it's so normalized like mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. We're conditioned like, to understand those narratives with women, I think, in a way that we're not with men. Mm-hmm. And to look for them because we mm-hmm. are primed. We we live our lives constantly thinking I might get raped. You know, yep. like yep. we, I, mm-hmm. you know, like I always want to point this out whenever I can. The whole like when I go jo- every day where I park, where I go jogging. Yeah, you know, it's always like, on your mind. Always. Always on your mind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm. you're going to see it. You're going to see it when that 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 it is. It is. I don't want to say subtle, I guess. I mean, it's not, it doesn't draw focus the way the tree rape scene in Evil Dead does. It's not like the centerpiece of the film. You could read it another way. Like Mm -hmm. you could be like, oh, it's just kind of, we're just seeing it as an angle between her legs, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then if you're, you know, I feel like women are probably not going to read it another way, you know, we're going to be like, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. That's going there. That's bad. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I'll say like it, I I feel like it does make men uncomfortable, which is one reason that I love what this movie is doing, but it also makes me really uncomfortable too. And I've kind of mentioned a little bit and I haven't really talked much about it on past episodes. Like there's a big trigger that I have that I don't name that some movies have. And this is kind of, this is that whole like a man being in that position is related to that trigger. And it makes me really uncomfortable to see Kane in that position because I fear like I have been trained to expect a backlash from seeing a man in a position of subservience or a man losing power. And so when I see that, I think, oh shit, like it just makes, it puts my hackles up, you know? And I think it's, I'm going to advise that you not watch Tetsuo the Iron Man. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. It won't leave my brain. Carry on. (laughs) Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I think that's one of the things 
when I was thinking about doing this episode this morning, I think that was one of the things that I kind of was inching closer to understanding why this movie affects me the way that it does. And I think that might be why it is, is because it's just, it's a, a, I don't know if it's a deconstruction. There's some word that I'm looking for that's like flipping it that we're just not used to seeing. And I think it's why deliverance hits people so hard in a lot of ways, because that's it's just flipping that narrative that we are so used to seeing in a way that really exposes the bias in those narratives, you know. So anyways, long conversation for another time, but. You know, I think I'm, I'm one day I'm going to figure this movie out and I'm going to figure out my response to it and where it kind of lives inside me. And I think I every time I watch it, I get closer. And, to and it, one day it will know. just burst out of your chest and you'll be like, oh. and it will. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's one more thing that I wanted to mention. Um, and it was actually the first note that I wrote. Um, and I don't think anyone will be surprised by it. But I wrote Tom Skerritt is really hot. <laughs> And I just love, love him in this movie. And I know that like I was, I wrote the, in the rough draft, like it's tragic that they don't make out. I know. And, and I know we talked a little bit about this, but I love that they don't. I love that they don't too. It's purely my horniness. And there's not even like romantic tension. Mm -hmm. Like it's like workplace romantic. Cause also, you know what? That can happen that there is no workplace romantic tension, which is something (laughs) I feel like sometimes dudes have a hard time believing Right. Like mm-hmm. that there can, you can exist in a world where like, there's not like some flirting and some, Hey, you know, like, yeah. yeah sometimes you're really not attracted to your coworkers. Like truly. I'm and yet you respect you them and deal with them <laughs> and maybe even like have some banter with them, but right. it doesn't have to be a sexualized, right. You know, flirtatious banter. It can just right. be you're talking. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even oh. if you're two super hot human beings like uh, Sigourney, Weaver and and Sigourney Weaver. I, yeah. This is, yeah, it's, I can, I can tell the difference when I'm projecting my attraction to both of the actors right. on screen and her, versus what's yeah. actually in the text of the film. And that is what's happening here. So. <laughs> right. And it's what I love so much for a long time about the X-Files is that mm-hmm. we had Skulder and Molly who had that relationship. And I, I didn't watch. Did you just say Skulder and Molly? And Molly. <laughs> Scolder and Molly. Oh, I should have said Mulder and Scully. I apologize. No, I'm was sure cute. I want to see this. Right Scolder and Molly. Scolder and Molly. <laughs> like an adventure time when they gender flip all the characters, but for the X Files. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and I do think they dive into that in later seasons that I, when I may have not has been watching it, as carefully. It, it, it's not as in depth. the series. You know, the series falls off pretty hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty, like, pretty hard. Yeah. Well, and now let's um, move on to now it's time for an uplifting moment. Uh, This is where we share any grounding and self-care that's been particularly helpful for us recently. Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the tough days or moments. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or feel better. And I am... I feel like I'm never going to stop unpacking boxes and I, my world has just kind of been a also like catching up on things. Like I, I guess I thought I was just going to be able to carry on with life um, normally as I was in the process of moving. And so I'm finding myself with a ton of stuff to catch up on. And it just got to be too much the other day. And I just laid on my bed and I watched two episodes of Veep, which is a show that I is aged a little strangely than I anticipated, even in the short time that I've watched it. But I I really enjoy it. And I didn't have to think about writing about it. I wasn't going to do any podcasts about it. I just watched it and I fell asleep for about 10 minutes. And it was just so nice to just just give myself that time. And I found like I, I was more productive later that night. So 
So yeah, that's mine. Anyone else care to share? I'll share. Uh, so I had a rough week. Just, you know, I recently moved myself and I say recently, which means February <laughs> feels pretty recent. That, um, yeah. and, you know, personal I, shit happening in my life and um, some triggers that, that emerged over the week. But I have in my professional life, I've been able to create space for myself on weekends. I very intentionally am like, I, I used not to have weekends, right? And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I ha now have weekends, but because I'm now living by myself, I sometimes don't know what to do with them. Like, you know, my, I keep my house pretty clean. I don't have like, you know, it, 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 so yesterday and yesterday I was, I was feeling, I didn't know how I felt and um, I didn't want to do anything. I just didn't want to do anything. And I kind of just let myself, like I made myself go for a walk and like do, there's some like a piece of gardening that I wanted to like kind of knock off my list, but it was pretty easy. And I did those things so I could then go inside, pull down my blackout curtains, and then I binged for all mankind. And I ate what I wanted to eat and which mm -hmm. wasn't all healthy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation I could have, which is how my eating habits have changed now that I'm not in a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I have to look a certain way. And it was actually kind of hard to just do what I wanted to do. And I had to keep reminding myself that this is what I get. This is what I deserve. Mm -hmm. That I don't need to be productive. And actually, I almost wanted to say when you said it made me more productive later in the day, that actually I want to remind myself this is not to an end. This is not to an end mm -hmm. of being yes. productive later. This is because mm -hmm. I need it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just need to lay in bed with my blackout curtains and my knitting, which is what the other thing that I do. And I was actually looking outside today and I'm like, maybe do I want to do it again today? <laughs> mm -hmm. And also I wanted to say, cause I'm wearing this office t-shirt, which is like really tacky and like whatnot. <laughs> but, uh, I actually bought it at Target this past week because I, my other comfort viewing is I just rewatched like the first seven seasons of the office pretty much like mm -hmm. all the time. And I used to get mad at myself. Like, Anna, what are you doing? There's so much great comedy out there that you could be watching that you, you know, like you haven't seen and everybody talks about. And then I'm like, you know, you know what? No, I get to do what I need right now. And mm -hmm. there's such a voice in my head about productivity and about like health, um, like what it means to be healthy, like working out, like I have to work out, have to work out, have to eat right, have to eat right. I don't know. Like it's, it's, um, I hope I'm not going on too long. Uh, no, no. Yeah. It's like these structures that we impose on ourselves that, mm we can let go of, but it's really hard to see that sometimes, you know? Yeah. And experimenting with what it's like to just do what I want to, <laughs> to just do what I want, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. is uncomfortable, weirdly uncomfortable mm -hmm. to do nothing, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Um, and I'm like, I'm like getting a little teary, not because I'm angry, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> like really well, though, like I am. And, um, I think that sometimes I was sort of taught that means you're doing something right. That means you're doing something, you're doing some work. If yeah. something mm -hmm. makes you, makes you be in touch with that. So, mm -hmm. so maybe I'll do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, um, read codependent no more, uh, years and years ago. And that was one of the things they said recovery is, is doing what you want to do and making that choice for yourself. But it's really hard at first, you know, and, and, you know, forever sometimes. So, Yeah. I mean, I, I very much relate to everything you just said, and it's a an on, constant ongoing battle in my own mind. 
of, you know, the voices that tell me I'm being lazy versus the voices that tell me I need to take care of myself versus the voice that says, is this a really bad depression spiral kicking in? <laughs> like, I can't yeah. tell. And, mm. and so I, I am in a relatively similar place and having lived alone for this whole pandemic year, I think I did a little too much of the letting myself <laughs> eat what I want kind of thing. And now I'm like really down on myself about everything. And, you know, it's always just finding a non-pathological way to talk to yourself about these, these kind of things. That is really the struggle for me where it's just like, be just be a little bit kind to yourself is, is shockingly hard. Even after years of therapy, even after years of no, of knowing what the fuck I'm doing to myself mentally, um, I, I still really struggle with it yeah. and, and striking that balance. Um, similarly yesterday I did what I had to do in the morning and then, um, fell asleep for most of the afternoon watching episodes of the golden girls, which is one of my comfort go-to sitcom type things that I'll watch over and over again, because, and it just has a rhythm to it, <laughs> you know? And I think mm -hmm. just the, the predictability of the set and the characters that don't really, they go through growth, but they don't really change, you know? And it just has, just has a rhythm that just kind of lulls you to sleep mm -hmm. like the rocking of a cradle. <laughs> and that was my yesterday. So that's my self-care is, uh, thank you for being a friend. Oh, <laughs> I had a similar day yesterday where I like oh, wow. got up, wasn't feeling it. And it's been like a rough, it's been a rough month. And I got news on Friday. Like I, the knee surgery I thought I would get soon. It's like a month away. So I'm like hobbling around on one leg to the point where my other knee is fucked up now from overcompensating. Mm. So like right as summer break starts, I'm going to be going for surgery right before we go on vacation for a week. So looking forward to a Cape Codry vacation on crutches, possibly mm -hmm. after booking it a year ago. And just a bunch of little, like the cat almost dying, a bunch of things like popping up like one after another, after another, and a bunch of different work stressors. And I got out of the shower around like 9, 9.30 yesterday, got into bed and I'm like, I think I just need to lie here today. Like, I don't know if I'm sick. Uh -huh. I don't know if it's a little bit of a depressive thing, but I need like a day. And I literally did nothing but played a little simulation game on my phone until it got dark. Uh, and then today I'm like up at 6.30 and just getting stuff done. I just needed that day. But mostly what I've been doing for my self-care, like I, almost more than movies, like love music. And I've been putting together this like playlist to listen to. And it's just like alt rock bands from the early 90s on late night shows. So it's like... <laughs> DJ Harvey on Leno doing Rid of Me. Radiohead's first performance of Creep on Conan in 93. Uh, the Spinanes on No... Oh, no uh, oh my God, Rebecca Gates is my <laughs> indie rock crush forever and ever. I found two shows of them playing upstairs to the Middle East in Boston that I didn't know existed. And I'm like, A, why wasn't I there? But like no work got done. I just watched them back to back. So it's like this 20-song list that I'm continuing to build and it's I find it so something about playing on late night is so relaxing I don't know what it is uh, but the other thing is like Bob Mould is touring this fall and he's my all-time favorite musician like he fronted Husker Du, Sugar, his solo work is incredible and I'm like I've never seen him perform live I'm like oh where are the tickets like soon and I'm like fuck it I'm ordering them tonight because who knows what's going to happen so the show's not till September and I hit like send payment on the credit card and immediately like burst into tears. Cause I'm like, I'm going to actually see live music again. I mean, my vacations mm -hmm. used to be my best friend and I hopping in a car 
sleeping on floors at random person's houses and going to see bands like Hot Water Music and Small Brown Bike for like eight shows in a row. Like I slept in a bathtub at one point because we had no money for hotels. Just like, you, we can put you up on our bathtub. I'm like, deal, you know? And it would be like the best eight days of our life. Did not do that in my 40s. Uh, now it's like, <laughs> I will use hotel points. We will mm-hmm. definitely, we're going to travel. Like we will stay somewhere nice at this point. So, um, But just getting to see live music again, knowing that that is coming very soon, it feels awesome. Especially because it's Bob Mould. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait because I've never, ever gotten to see him perform live. And he's just, his music is just amazing. I am also a fan. Yeah, same. Same. Who's going to do Nay Rising was like the first punk album I ever heard. Oh, so good. And I, the, I remember the, the song, like New Day mm-hmm. Rising. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, you can do that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you can just scream? Yep. Just play fast <laughs> Feels and loud. good. <laughs> but he had so many hooks. His stuff has so Oh, it's so poppy. It's so poppy. Like, I actually don't like some of the stuff that's more noisy. Mm-hmm. But like Sugar, like Copper oh, Blue perfect. is like... Oh, perfect. Pop perfection, you know, and then Black Sheets of Rain is like, no. yes, anger. Yes. No. You know, uh-huh. like, yes, like angry depression. I, um, I would love yeah. to hear those because like Spot from SST couldn't produce a record shit. I mean, I would love to hear the early Husker Do stuff run through the production like Sugar got and his solo stuff got and to hear how Does it Steve Albini produce Sugar? Sound. I don't know. I feel like I, he produced something that Bob Mould did, like, fa- hmm. but I, I don't know. It's all kind of in the mush of my memories. This is all bringing back, like, I now feel like it's, you know, 1994 and I'm working at WHPK. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was into all this, like, I, I used to hang out at a radio station in the early 2000s, a college radio station, and these this group yeah. of dudes, like, introduced me to all this stuff, <laughs> you know, and so I, I get in those be, vibes. Uh, another, we'll do another podcast. It's about early 90s, like, indie oh. rock. <laughs> yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. I used to say that in my car, it's always 1995. Hell yeah. We just did the Simpsons episode where Homer goes to Lollapalooza. Oh, I love that episode. It's, Mm. it's very pain. It's like a painful thing to watch because of like, he's supposed to be, I think around the same age that I am now in that episode. Mm -hmm. And it's been like more years than Mm -hmm. elapsed between his Mm -hmm. flashbacks. And I'm just like, no, no, but I still love it. (laughs) I was trying to explain that time period to my, it was funny, like they were like what he was playing in the car initially. My daughter was like, "Why are they making fun of him? This stuff actually sounds really good." But <laughs> trying to explain that time period to my daughter, and I never felt more like old man old yelling man at a cloud. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> well, we want to know what you think. What '90s music is your favorite? <laughs> I can't. I don't have to be like just Liz Fair Pavement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Tori Amos for me. That was oh, yeah. Super yeah, yeah. Chunk. I'm just going to yell names. Yes. Yeah, we're just going to start <laughs> naming bands. Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> Over Simpson smiling politely. Mm-hmm. Juliana Hatfield <laughs> playing with the Lemonheads. Oh, two <laughs> perfect records. Early Cat Power. Mazzy Star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, let's go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, these oh, are things that's if you are a young right. person listening to this podcast. They're just, this is where I all know. the listeners suddenly Sponge. drop off. Let's, yeah. let's get to our self-promotional discover. Right. We do need to do a spinoff on the, that topic. Maybe for Patreon. That yeah, we can just episode. like go nerd out on Patreon about all this shit. 
Well, so we do want to know what you think. Um, what is your favorite 90s music? What do you like to do in space that no one can hear? Have you ever used a flamethrower? And is your cat secretly working for the enemy? And I wrote that when I thought I was going to talk about this whole thing. I was watching it with this theory that Jonesy is really on the side of the xenomorphs. Oh. And he's like luring everyone in. And I don't think he is. Jonesy is a delightful cat. But I was just thinking about nefarious cats. That he's might just be trying, trying to take care me. of himself. Like Jonesy's mm-hmm. just like he trying is. to survive. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, and not, there's nothing wrong with that. He's yeah. like, Meow. cats are also perfect killing machines, though. Yeah, they really, I mean, everything <laughs> he says about the xenomorph could equally apply to the cat. I don't see. That's true. They're just much smaller. <laughs> yeah. And they don't, like, forcibly <laughs> impregnate people. Yeah. So, you know. True, yes. <laughs> that we know of. That, unless you get into, like, parasites and stuff, but that's a whole, that's a oh, different that's podcast. Not. So it's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's another Patreon spinoff episode. <laughs> Um, and you can, so you can share all of these things and more by following us on socials at psycho a pod and looking out for our prompts. And you can also join our Facebook group. The psychoanalysis podcast support group, uh, is a private and moderated place to share about topics we discuss in the episodes, grounding and self-care or anything else that is on your mind. And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you'd like to share privately and our homework question for today. I feel like we've talked about so many things we want to hear. So just, we would love to hear what you think. But our homework question for today, what scene surprised you most in a horror movie? I know this movie is known for its chestburster scene. What is your chestburster scene? What burst out of your chest with fright sometime? Yeah, I'll I'll word it better on the problem. (laughs) I get it. Um, And... Uh, And so next up for us, we are continuing our June theme of bad dads with another first watch for me. And we are going to be watching Come to Daddy starring a mustachioed Elijah Wood. And then I wrote, come to daddy indeed. And I don't know if I can really say it. I can't wait for you to see this. This character is so like doesn't have a lot of attractive qualities. So I'm very curious how you're going to feel about it after watching. See, and I love that I can say things like that now, having no clue what yeah. the movie is about. Mm-hmm. And then like really backtrack pretty hard. I, maybe I feel like I if I said it. that there'd be like a 20 thread text chain. app like, Mike, that's, <laughs> Can't do that, Mike. It's inappropriate. You can't. Mike, say it. And you'd be right. You'd be right. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying you'd be wrong, but I'm just saying, like, uh, he was just one of my early crushes. So I'm very excited to to visit. Can't um, hold you there. You know, I was going to say Midworld, but it's not Midworld. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Where I'm Middle Earth. That. Middle Earth. That's what I'm looking for. Close, yeah. close enough. We are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us here and there along with some other fantastic pods by going to consequence.net. And Anna, where can we find you online and what do you have coming up? Well, you know, uh, I'm in the Twitterverse at, at Anna Marie Cox. And I do have two other podcasts, I guess two and a half other podcasts if you count Losers Club. <laughs> The one that genre fans would might be most interested in is Space the Nation, in where I talk about uh, Dan uh, Dresner and I uh, talk about the politics of sci-fi um, and kind of look at science fiction through the lens of international relations. He's a professor at Tufts, as well as um, we've started to realize that I talk about capitalism a lot on the show. So <laughs> that's another fun bonus for anyone who's interested in that. And I want to actually say that what we it's not that we like are like, oh, this represents Trump and this represents, you know, Hillary Clinton. It's more like within the world of this science fiction, we're talking about what is happening. Like, what is the politics of what is happening? 
I've learned a lot about IR theory. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then my other podcast is uh, with friends like these, um, which is a crooked media podcast. And it is sort of political. We talk about capitalism on that too, but also um, generally about, I'm never going to come up with a good long log line from my own podcast. (laughs) I'm talking about uncomfortable things, talking about difference, work really hard to raise up voices, people you maybe haven't heard from, talk about things that maybe you don't talk about too much in public. And I want to particularly emphasize that for Mental Health Awareness Month, um, I did three interviews, which people who listen to this might be interested in. Two of them are about recovery. Moby, (laughs) the musician. Oh, wow. (laughs) Was on and we talked, Jen, you might be interested. We talked about 12-step recovery. He's in 12-step. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like a famous person in 12-step is kind of rare. So like who's like Mm -hmm. adamantly 12-step, like big book quoting 12-step. And then an interview with Andrew Gillum, um, the man who was almost elected governor of Florida. Mm-hmm. He lost by 30,000 votes, which is not very much. And then six months later, uh, had a scandal involving drugs, photographs, and a, a male sex worker. But now has been sober for 14 months. Wow. wow. And he's just really open on that show. Just It's funny because I told him to, to sort of convince him to come on the show. I told him we don't have to talk about the tawdry stuff he wanted to you know Mm -hmm. Hmm. and not in a tawdry way but in a way of like this is what I lost this is what I gained yeah Hmm. and then the third interview I want to call attention to is um was with Vince Granada whose brother killed their mother in a schizophrenic episode Wow. Hmm. and that's a conversation about schizophrenia and I feel like you know, mental health awareness. Yay! We we talk a lot about some of the some of the mental health diagnoses that are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Bipolar, I'm bipolar. Talk about you know that's easy, relatively easy to talk about. Depression, anorexia, you know, anxiety. We don't talk enough about some of the some of the diagnoses that are socially unacceptable, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, the cool thing about the Vince Granada story is that he loves his brother. And that he, they still have a relationship. He's been able to, I think forgive is the wrong word, but to process what happened mm-hmm. and integrate it yep. into their relationship and come out on the other side of it. And I just would really encourage people to, if, if mental health is your jam, if this is the kind <laughs> of show you are interested in, I think that convert, it also happened to be the first conversation he did in his entire book tour. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, I think we got, you know, it's pretty raw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can link to that, I think, in the show notes yeah. as well. So just because mm-hmm. I think that's really a really important conversation and I'm, I'm glad you're having it. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then Jen and I did a really good episode for Losers Club about re- addiction recovery. And yeah. We I, did. It's awesome. So. Yeah, really enjoyed I, I it. agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was one of the the Losers Club episodes. I think I'm most proud of. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. And so, yeah, I listen to my other shows, and you, I think people listening to this would probably like them. So there you go. I think they would. Too. We think so. And too. I love this. By the way, this was so much fun. Thank Have you for back. coming on. I'll just ask so on much. air. Thanks for coming on. Have me back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, now, now it's uh, there's a paper trail. So yes, we will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mike, where can we find you? So you can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. Uh, you can also find my other show, The Pod and The Pendulum, 
everywhere you get your podcasts. That's where we cover horror movie franchises. We just did an episode where we dove into addiction a bit with the uh, remake of Evil Dead in 2013. Uh, And now we're moving on to the Conjuring verse for our next seven episodes. So that is going to be a lot of fun. That is where Lindsay, Travis, and I uh, talk like horror movies, like one at a time running through the franchise. And actually, Alien, our Alien episode is where Lindsay and I first met. Like she was a guest on that episode. I still think it's probably, if not the best, one of the best shows we did. And I'll probably post like in our Facebook group, like a link to that episode as well as our Blair Witch one as well, because uh, I think our listeners would really like uh, those episodes. Uh, I've got some Mm -hmm. guest spots coming up right now. So I just recorded with Kill by Kill to talk Scream 3, uh, which was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I was like the defender of that movie because I (laughs) enjoy all things Scream, although, you know, I recognize that's one that's got some warts on it. And I'll be appearing on Certified Forgotten with uh, Matt and Matt talking uh sweatshop a late 2000s slasher movie that is like a lot of fun uh and actually started as a horror parody for like hustler video and then just became a straight up horror movie written by ted gee again who directed mohawk and uh we are uh we are still here so looking forward to like talking that one um, and I've got an article coming up in the latest issue of uh, We Are Horror, where I look back hey. at um, the way horror shifted after 9-11 and became kind of much crueler and meaner than oh. it had been. I am trying to work on that today at some point. Um, I am <laughs> definitely behind and forgot how hard writing can be sometimes. So yeah, oh, find me in those horse. places. <laughs> uh, Laura, where can we find you? Well, you can find me. <laughs> well, Lisa, I, 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 uh, I have an ongoing thing that I've locked myself into doing that I, I always just, I never know what I'm about to say. So let's see what comes out of my mouth. You can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, much like the, the snow white underwear that you went into the stasis pod wearing eight months ago and you popped out of the Ooh. stasis pod and it's still just as white as the day you went in there. So you know that technology is good. Keeping the sweat in, keeping the poop in. What what is that first trip to the bathroom like? That's at underalls U N D E R A L L S. That's where you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm joking. I, I don't know. I don't know. I got, I've got a lot of questions. Um, and yeah, that's that's where you can find me online, talking shit, making dumb jokes. Um, and I'm occasionally on the Losers Club and Halloweenies as well. I think both episodes of our Scream 2, both parts of the Scream 2 episode are now out there in the world. So if you want to hear me make a lot of weird, uncomfortable jokes there too, that's the right thing here is I just make myself uncomfortable. That's where I am. They're delightful. That's where I'll (laughs) remain. Goodbye forever. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find me at Jim Ferratu um, on all of the socials. You can find me also on the Losers Club. And we're about to do some Lacey's story coverage, which Anna, I know you're going to be part of. And just some other fun stuff. There's a surprise episode that's coming soon that I am really, really excited to hear and cannot wait. So yeah, you can find me there and you can find me. I've got some writing stuff coming out soon. I kind of went through a, a panic pitch as many things as I can think of, period, which also relates to me being super behind on a bunch of stuff. So just you follow me and I'll share bunches of stuff that is coming out for me. 
And yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Yeah. And that's our episode on Alien. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for choosing this movie. This was so much fun to talk about. And again, like I love talking about this movie because it I feel like it helps me understand it more. So this was such a fantastic conversation. I this is delightful, you know, um, especially is especially cool to be able to talk about the fact that I like had a bad week and that this podcast was is help was help especially helpful for me um, to be able to kind of talk feelings and agency and all of that and this is you know y'all are doing work here <laughs> well thank you really so much. Cool. I mean that really is good to hear and I'm so glad that you were came, came on and talked and I love hearing from you so thank you for being so open with us so it's, it's awesome mm-hmm. to find people who are up for this so it's great <laughs> yes and listeners, thank you for spending time with us, too. Um, please make sure you're taking care of yourselves and taking care of each other. And and let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And, and we're, we're all, all, all out of bubblegum. Bubble <laughs>